0: Folks, see that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says, applesauce. No, no. no, no. I'm kidding. It says, applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right,
1: here we go.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. And I am Jim Laskowski.
3: And I am Patrick Rapol. And uh, with us, I'm actually very excited. Uh, we have a very special guest, uh, Brendan Leonard. Um, Hello. Yeah. You might, you might know him from uh, his, his book reviews. He got blurbed on the soft, <laughs> on the paperback cover of you uh, got Savages. Blurbed. Is it The Savages or Savages?
0: It's, it's Savages.
3: Okay, Savages. That was kind of cool. Uh, he, he has a website, brendanmleonard.com, and we're uh, very happy to have him.
0: Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great.
3: Um, Before we get into what we watched this week, we do have two emails. They're nice, short, uh, interesting questions.
2: Yeah. Why don't you uh, take one, and then I'll take one. All right. Whichever Uh, one you
3: want. I'll take the one from Jason Weinberg. Jason Weinberg asked um, if we have any favorite films about spirituality.
1: Ooh.
2: Hmm. Um, I think the first one that came to mind was Last Temptation of Christ. That's what I was going to say. Yeah.
3: Um, That's... That's definitely it's one of the only movies about Jesus where like the suffering of Jesus is feel like you feel it and not not in the Passion of the Christ sense where it's just yeah. visceral it's like you you see actually what he gave up not just by being on the cross but by you know leading the life he led and um you feel a little you feel a lot of
2: empathy for, I mean, and, for
3: him you know I'm not I'm I'm not a I'm not a Christian but I was you know raised raised Catholic and that was something I feel I didn't ever get, yeah, um, from being raised Catholic until I saw that movie.
2: Well, he also brought up uh, a, a favorite movie of mine in the email that he listed as a favorite: "Wings of Desire" uh, by Wim Benders. Very, very interesting I filmmaker. Had, that's that is. And uh, I have
3: I, not seen that movie. It's it's a German movie. Yes, and it's it's what. They remade as City of Angels, right? Yeah. Which, I, which, strangely enough, I don't hate
2: City of Angels. No? Most people do. I don't. I, I definitely hate the ending, but I don't know. There was something about that movie that won me over. It could have been just the score. Something like that, you know, just... I mean, I, re- I realize that Nicolas Cage is pretty, pretty awful in that movie, but I don't know. It's like the overall mood and feel of the movie got to me after a while. And I, I'm such a huge fan of the original, though. I mean, it's... It's Peter Falk. It's got. It's pretty much just about an angel overseeing humans, and he wants to become human so that way he can fall in love with, you know, and know what the feeling and the experience of falling in love is like. So it's it's really good. It's 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 got it's got a great um, musical number with Nick Cage as the birthday party. So being really dark and nasty, Nick Cage.
3: Are, are um, we talking? We're not, Did you go back and forth from Wings of Desire, and then we went back to <laughs> no Wings City of Desire angel? has. Has Nick Cage, or wait a minute. Nick Cave. <laughs> Nick Cave. Nick Cave. Oh, God, that'd be great if it was like Nick Cage in Wild at Heart. <laughs> um, everything I know about City of Angels, I know from the Iris Goo Goo Dolls music video. Shut your mouth. So I'm pretty sure that movie is about someone who looks through telescopes.
0: No. And Dennis Franz. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Franz's ass.
3: What about you, Brendan?
0: Uh, well, I think *Last Temptation* is definitely one—the one that springs to mind. The one about the, the thing about that movie that I really like is that it really humanizes Jesus in mm-hmm. some really fascinating ways. Um, definitely, I always put it that Jesus is pretty much a pimp in that movie. Like, there's that <laughs> scene where he's at the wedding and they're like, "Hey, Jesus, we ran out of wine," and Jesus is like, "No, you didn't." And there's like, look again. And the guy looks and, oh, there's mine. <laughs> yeah. And she just gives him like that kind of almost thumbs up, like that Buddy Christ face. Like, <laughs> and Harvey so Keitel like is. How, how kind of fun uh, Willem Dafoe is in yeah. that movie. And then the other one is actually one that I that springs to mind. There's one we're going to be talking about this week, which is Fearless. So we'll save that mm-hmm. for when we get into yeah. it. But I do want to throw out. Um, all That Jazz, just because And I huh. talked about this. Oh, that's often.
3: right. Yeah, he does.
0: No. Yeah, but the, the, the end of All That Jazz is one of just one of those moments where even though I'm a non-practicing Catholic and I do believe in, in a higher power, I really have experienced kind of that, quote-unquote, enlightenment through art, and the last, like, ten minutes of All That Jazz are really kind of one of those just kind of profoundly spiritual moments, and I really think it's about... In a lot of ways, it's about a lot of the themes of Fearless, um, but it's really kind of about life and death and God and, and everything. And I think it really does it in a way that's non-religious, uh, with also with, with with also being very spiritual.
3: Yeah, interesting. Um, so. Yeah, it's hard for me. See, I didn't even think about. I like uh, actually before we even started the show, Jim mentioned Fearless, and I. Like, I guess, I don't know, it's hard for me to separate uh, religious and spiritual, but that's totally true about uh, All That Jazz. Um, the other one I would think of um, would be The Passion of Joan of Arc um, by, is it Carl Dreyer, right? I think yeah. so. Yeah, Carl yeah. yeah. Dreyer, um, and it's it's definitely like one of the greatest silent movies ever made, but it's just, <laughs> again, uh, the the suffering um, yeah. that she goes through, that it's, and it's like and it's i i mean i don't want to keep harping on passion of the christ but it's so much more powerful when it's all mental right and it's all you know felt and despite, internal i mean there's there is some implied very nasty violent um, torture but for the for the most part it's just everything is on the uh, actress's face i can't remember the actress's name right now um but that's that's definitely one of my favorites um, i got that as a gift to Annette's. <laughs> Uh, I was in a gift exchange, and someone said and I asked them what they like, and they said they like things that are about spirituality and i said oh that 's the best movie about spirituality i know that 's an excellent choice yeah
2: um, I, I was thinking i mean it 's not a spiritual movie, but if you want to watch a movie like how I would like the afterlife to be um, check out albert brooks 's defending your Life, <laughs> which to me is a perfect movie about um, not necessarily spirituality but just how fear you know controls us in many ways and how you know trying to overcome it it seems to be like life's big quest and uh the idea of justifying your actions after you die sounds really interesting to me (laughs)
3: especially I especially love in that movie how it's just completely it's not any kind of moral judgment right it's all about it's (laughs) that's like such an interesting take on heaven and hell is it has nothing to do with morals it has everything to do with courage
2: Mm mm-hmm
3: I <clears throat> I yeah. really enjoyed that movie a lot.
2: I'm also a big fan of uh spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dario Argento. <laughs> Spirit. That was Suspiria. terrible. That's Sorry. from the
3: uh <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stained glass in that movie. I'll give you that. Yeah. Um
2: Oh, you know what? The Fountain. That would be a good pick, I think. The Fountain.
3: Yeah, I'm Yeah, yeah that would I again it's hard, it's hard for me to
2: separate that um and then eventually, once we talk about Terrence Malick's *Tree of Life*, um, that'll be an interesting discussion. We'll see what happens. It's a hard movie. I've seen it, and it's a hard movie to talk about at this point. <laughs> I don't know how I'm well, going to articulate my my feelings on it. But well, it, Patrick, a very let me ask you this: experience.
0: Have you seen? Sorry, I didn't mean that's to
2: okay.
3: I'm, all, I'm um, pretty much. Have
0: okay. you seen uh, *Keeping the Faith* with uh, with Ed <laughs> Norton and, and Ben Stiller?
3: Oh, <laughs> I oh, have boy. seen *Keeping the Faith*. With what, did,
0: what did you think of that?
3: I thought it was, I thought it was a charming movie. Uh, See,
0: uh, I would, I would put that on a list of of interesting movies or, or favorite movies about kind of spirituality or religious themes because I hmm. think it does a lot of. It's it's very honest in that it doesn't cop out at the end. I'm going to spoil the ending. It doesn't cop out it. in having Edward Norton, oh, like leave the priesthood and you know marry uh, Jenna Elfman or whatever. It's very true to kind of its characters and 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 their backgrounds. Hmm. Um, so, I think that's a a, a pretty f- charming movie about uh, spirituality with also being about kind of more religious themes.
2: Better than Little Buddha?
0: I did not see Little Buddha. Oh,
2: shucks. How about Powder? Better than Powder? Uh,
0: it, 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 I did not see Powder, but I will say it's okay. probably better than Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I,
3: Excellent. Everything I remember about keeping... The, I mean, that's a movie I saw when I was like 12 or something. Uh, everything I... Or maybe a little older, but... <laughs> Everything I remember about keeping the faith is that uh, is the beginning sort of montage where you you see them doing their little comedy routines for their yes. congregations. And um, it's Like
0: a, one of them brings like a gospel choir in or something.
3: Yeah, yeah. Ed Norton brings a it, like a Baptist choir into a like a Catholic church. Right. Um, and <laughs> um, and then I remember the Ed Norton's dream sequence about him being tempted by Jenna Elfman like sexually. And it like it turns Jenna Elfman into like this feral monster. <laughs> and it's it was like one of the most frightening things I'd ever seen. <laughs> Where, I, at the time, like I saw, like she just starts like screaming and tearing at his clothes, like like she's like she's a sexual golem or something. <laughs> it's it's that'd <laughs> be a good bad band name. <laughs> sexual golem is a great bad band name.
2: And for all you Lost fans out there, Miles from Lost shows up in a hilarious moment involving a karaoke machine in keeping the faith. That's one thing I definitely remember about that movie. That was funny. He starts singing Jesse's girl or something. <laughs> That's very few things I remember about that movie, but I'm willing to watch it again. It's I, I watched that over death to smoochie.
3: You know, honestly, I, I, I think, um, that might be sort of an interesting segment for future episodes. If we, uh, we, we think of movies that we saw, like when they first came out a long time ago and we mentioned like the three, three things we remember about it. Yeah. Um, it's weird how mem- <laughs> memory works in general you know it, there is uh, see I actually um, there's, a, there's a book called The Film That Changed My Life and it's, an, it's interviews with all sorts of different directors and about all the movies that changed like that made them realize you know either that got them into film as an art or made them realize they wanted to be a filmmaker and uh, it's a Chicago it's the author is from Chicago and he is doing a, um like a touring thing where he's having these directors come and introduce these movies and I uh, I got to see John Waters introduce uh, Wizard of Oz. Nice, yeah, John. Wa- John Waters. If you ever get a chance to see him speak live, he's so amazing and wonderful and funny. And you he shake a... his
0: hand. Yes, I
3: did, and I I told him about the first time I saw pink flamingos,
0: at a, <laughs> which was
3: in a, a public library like viewing station, and people were walking by and thought I was watching porn. Nice. <laughs> and he 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 was mostly just shocked that they had pink flamingos in a library, um, but. <laughs> I think he should have his own podcast. I think that would be great. Oh god, that'd be so great. Um and he and the, one he, the way he introduced Wizard of Oz, like he he completely recontextualized it. So like it suddenly became this absurd comedy where everyone was laughing at all these weird parts that he pointed out beforehand, but um part part of the pre-interview they talked about um the uh, the, the author of the book had this sort of idea when he t- from talking to different directors that movies um often the way you remember them is in as is just these specific moments. And I find that to be very true. Yeah. Um, and the, like John Waters mentioned the, the three moments, like you know that, that he remembered where, you know, the witch is melting and when the witch, fr- basically he just loves the wicked witch of the West, but that <laughs> might, that might be an interesting thing to do.
2: Yeah, definitely. We sort of <laughs> talked about my moment with the evil dead too. So yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Um, got another email here um unfortunately we don't have a name with this email (laughs) yeah Yeah. i'm surprised no no signature no nothing it was basically just one question that was it not not even capitalized i know yeah it's just one simple question your favorite actor
3: turned director
2: before Hmm. we even have this
3: discussion i would have to ask like are clint eastwood and john cassavetes almost feel like too obvious like I yeah. think te- I mean technically, if you want to get technical about, it, Woody Allen was an actor before he was true a director. So, but and if
2: you just do a Google search, you will see his name pop up on a list of favorite actors turned directors. Oh
3: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But um, you know Clint Eastwood's obviously a great one. Uh, even what what's sort of interesting about Clint Eastwood is he, he like you look at his career and it's almost hard to pick the point where he started directing because he transitioned the movies like yeah. he started directing movies that he was already, the kind of movies that he was already starring in.
2: Yeah, Play Mystery for me might have been his debut, I believe. Yeah, I think that was. But
3: he would he did like the Outlaw Josie Wales and uh,
2: Excellent Flick. Um, Hold on, Excellent Flick.
3: And a bunch of other like westerns that I always just never even thought he directed because I always I always like thought his directing career started more in like the 80s. With um,
2: with unforgiven being the pinnacle, yeah. In my opinion. Well, yeah,
3: I would I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, but yeah, Otla Josie Wales uh, with High Plains Drifter. That's the other one I couldn't remember. Ah, yes. Um, but yeah, so he and then of course John Cassavetes, who
2: who will we'll do pretty soon, maybe within the year, because he's a. I've only seen one of his movies and I really liked it, and I'm very curious to check out more of his work. Absolutely. Yeah
3: um you know <clears throat> he's he's someone who you know he was you know he was in the the dirty dozen and uh rosemary's baby but his movies were so influential it's it almost feels like it's weird calling him an actor turned director mm-hmm. it's like calling it, it's like it's like it's almost like actor was just sort of a job he had before he found his <laughs> career you know yeah. Like when you hear about, oh, Tom Hanks drove an ice cream truck, you know, it's like, you <laughs> yeah. don't think you don't call him an ice cream truck driver turn director. I mean, turn actor. Right. Oh, so Tom what? Hanks might be one, actually. Well, then I mean, oh, you, yeah,
0: <laughs> you also have all the, the theater guys that, that kind of started in acting and then went into directing, like Bob Fosse's one. Sidney Woumey was like a, a, a vaudeville child oh, wow. actor for a long time, um, you know those those are guys that uh started as actors but then you know are primarily known for for directing
3: right and that's a, and that's that's something I don't know as much i mean that's something actually you know um quite a bit about i'd say the the more of the history of theater um you know live theater than us mm-hmm. um, I was just looking
2: up the uh filmography for Sidney Pollock and uh yeah he's made some he's he's made some excellent films for sure um, and I think someone else that just uh, popped into mind too would be Sean Penn, who i I'm, I'm, oh, i wasn't God, too crazy i wasn 't too crazy about his first movie the Indian Runner, although it's not really clear in my head at the, at the moment i I need to rewatch it, but his two movies with Jack Nicholson are really, really good yeah. um, and then of course into the wild i I, I love that movie. So the
0: the end to the Pledge is is one of the more more haunting endings to a movie that I've I think I, I can remember. Yeah,
2: I would agree with that. That movie really resonated with me. Yeah. It's excellent. Um
3: I would say George Clooney would be Yeah. Again, good choice. I re- I really like uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. That's such a fun and well-made um interesting movie
2: yeah and, and good night and
3: good luck was pretty good i i enjoy good night and good luck it's a little i mean i it's a, i think it's like a little dry yeah and a, but um it's it's a good movie it's definitely you know a worthy movie um i wasn't i i started watching leatherheads i never that was one of those movies <laughs> where ten minutes in i realized my time would be better served elsewhere so
0: right I Anyone think else one of come? the the Anyone? guys now that has a lot of potential is uh, is Ben Affleck. I think he's oh, definitely good. Yeah. two for two in terms of you know good to to excellent movies.
3: Yeah, so. absolutely. Gone yeah. Baby Gone's great. I I still haven't seen The Town. I'm surprised. Yeah, no. I think so you like it's, it. Uh,
0: I was a little underwhelmed, but I thought it was it was very good. It's very solid. It's right. you know it's one of these movies that you don't see a lot very often where it's a movie you can take a date to and not feel depressed after, but it's like <laughs> a meaty movie for adults. And it really throws back to those movies of like the eighties and the nineties where, you know, everybody in it is a, you know, an actor or a recognized recognized yeah. face. And I think Affleck's, you know, make kicks it old school. And I think that's, uh, that's going to bear well for him.
2: I was let down by the ending of that, but overall I, yeah. I did like it
0: quite a bit.
3: Um,
2: how about another Ben?
3: Ben Stiller,
2: maybe. Hmm? What did he? Zoolander fans out there?
3: Hmm? Uh, I, I I don't like Zoolander, and I really <laughs> he directed Reality Bites. Did right? you know that Zoolander is Terrence Malick's favorite movie? <laughs> it's not <laughs> true, is it? It is. Why it's did he true. say it's, that? A,
2: it's in an interview. Look it up online when you get a chance. His favorite movie? I think it's his favorite movie, or like, it's, it's it's something he watches all the time. Apparently,
3: that that which that, is f- fucked, isn't it? That, that <laughs> that's so strange, like. Now I'm thinking, like, do you think Malik? He's reevaluating his. You should see him, folks. Do you think... He's got yeah. his hands do to you... his face. Yeah. Do you think Malik like thinks he's a fraud? Like. <laughs> Malik's like I'm doing these pretentious bullshit art films. What I really should doing is entertaining people, like reality, bites. like like a reverse version of Sullivan's Travels. <laughs>
0: Where it's- well, there's a there's a great story like that that uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone tell that after the release of the South Park movie, they got a letter from Stephen Sondheim, who's you know ob- arguably the greatest Broadway composer of the last fifty years, saying that uh, he thought the South Park movie was the best musical that he'd seen in like twenty years or something. I remember.
3: It. <laughs> I actually yeah I saw that in an Might interview. Might be true actually. Um I've I've warmed I've I mean I've cooled on South Park. I think it's really I think it's really cool in a lot of good ways but for the most part, uh, the movie represents to me the older South Park which I'm not mm-hmm. as big of a fan of. Yeah. Where they were still like a little too amused with really juvenile things. Right. Yeah. Um they
2: get they bogged down with their own ideas and being over the top.
3: Yeah, and then I think there was like a sweet spot somewhere around like season six. Um, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but, uh, where they just started like really embracing the silly side without having to be too, uh, stupid and too, you know, scatological and all that. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, one other one I would, now that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned, uh, theater actors, turn directors. Um, and, uh, just uh, last year, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman directed oh, Jacko's yeah. Boating. It's his first movie he directed, and it's, but mm-hmm. and it's he directed it on stage first. But that was definitely one of my favorite movies of last year. Um, I'm I, I'm really upset. We we got to see him at a Q and A, me and Jim, and we didn't like there was a and we didn't think to ask like what his future directing will you be plans our, were. You'd be guest on our podcast. No, we didn't even <laughs> have it back then, but. That's right. Now that I think about, like, I wonder if he has future directing plans or if this just sort of happened because. uh,
0: I mean, Jack Goes Boating is based out of this theater company that he was with, with the Public Theater for a while. One of my friends is actually pretty intimately involved with it, and I think, like, you know, he directs a play like a season or every, you know, uh, every couple of seasons or so. So, I definitely wouldn't surprise me if that came out of uh, another another piece that he did. Because I mean, he does. I think he was actually directed. Uh, he played Iago uh, on stage a couple years ago, and I think he actually directed that, although I'm not sure. Huh. So he does a lot of theater directing.
3: Yeah, yeah, and he was his film direct. He said he got his he got he said he got most of um, his film uh, directing technique from Sydney Lumet, who mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. does uh, like he said he does like three times as long rehearsal time as any other yeah. director he's he worked does with. For like two three months. I yeah, think. yeah. Like really long rehearsals And then when, they, when they're when they in there They're able to do it Right um, Anyway uh, So those were very good questions uh, Thank you yeah, for thank writing you. in And by the way Last episode Got two 200 downloads Which is the most We've had uh, so far And it's I mean Small potatoes As far as podcasts go But it's kind of exciting So uh, Yeah
2: Keep the emails coming folks Yeah
3: Thanks for listening You know Show your friends all that uh, We're very happy uh, Let's get into What movies we watched this week Awesome On deadly ground, little children, Jackie Brown, Robocop, Hudson Hawk, Rio Bravo, Woodstock, Super Bad, Leo's Way, Drunken Master Child's Play, JFK, Blown Away, what else do I have to say? We love a lot of movies, though we get it right, i but we're still excited. We love a lot of movies, now it's time to talk about the things we've watched.
2: I'll go first, I suppose. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, most things I watched at home, but I did uh, venture out to the, uh, theater to check out Super 8. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, um, a fan of J.J. Abrams in general, but for the most part, his movies- You're a big
3: fan of Felicity.
2: I'm a big fan of Felicity. Yeah. And a big fan of Lost, although I have problems with Lost. Um especially as the more and more I think about it. <laughs> and, uh, but for the most part, like his movies, as I'm watching them, I am really enjoying them as I watch them. And they would be like solid three stars out of four kind of movies. But they don't really, I don't know, they don't, they don't really transcend in any way. They don't necessarily like stay with me. And I am not excited to rewatch any of his movies. I think the only movie that, of his that I actually love is something that he wrote and didn't direct. And that was uh, Joyride with uh steve zahn and paul walker which is a really tight 90 minute sort of stalker killer trucker movie and that's a lot like uh, a movie like breakdown or duel i i i don't know i guess i have a thing for killer trucker movies apparently because i love all those all three of those movies
3: it's a good um, genre it's a good sub genre yeah i want to see more of that have you seen uh maximum, what's, overdrive? What's the movie with, uh, <laughs> maximum overdrive would not be an example of a good one uh Shoot! What's the movie with uh, Jimmy Lee Curtis? The Australian movie. Um, hold on. Hmm. Keep talking about Super Eight. I'm Terror Train? No. No. <laughs> Keep talking about Super Eight. I'll look it up. Um,
2: so yeah, you, you described at some point, Patrick, that this w- that Super Eight was like Spielberg porn, and uh, you're not too far off base with that. It's it, it is exactly what I expected. Um, it's about a group of kids who are making a home movie and witness a train accident, and what caused the train accident. is Sort of the the basis for the mystery. And once that mystery comes into fruition, it basically becomes a rather conventional summer blockbuster. That's part Jurassic Park, part Close Encounters. You know, little little ET and Goonies thrown in there. A great action set pieces when those are taking place. I was you know grabbing my seat and whatnot. I thought they were really tense and exciting. Um, and he he brings to you know a, a sense of time and place with the nostalgia of the late seventies the era that the movie takes place in. I was really into it for the first half especially when you get to know the kids and I think all the kids are really do a really good job and don't really come across well, yeah, a couple of them come across as caricatures, but I got less interested as time went on because once you realize what's going on, it's not there's not a lot of stakes. There's not it doesn't pay off. in, in the same way like Cloverfield was where I was into it for a while and then once we get to a certain point, I kind of got exhausted. And can't just,
3: stick, you can't stick the landing. No.
2: No. I enjoyed I enjoyed Star Trek a lot. It's not very... It's, I did. Again, it's all right. another th- great three-star movie. I mean, just like, hey, I enjoyed this while I'm watching it. Probably not going to watch it again. I liked it for what it was.
0: And yeah, I like it a lot. That's one yeah. I can just kind of stick in and have in the background. I mean, it's not sure. really good, but it's it's a fun time.
3: Right. How are, how are the lens flares? Too, the many. <laughs> <laughs> too, too many. Super Too
2: many. That's what he brings. I mean, what can you say? I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I, like, I like his homages to certain things, you know, and I, I, I enjoy where he's coming from, and obviously Spielberg produced this and whatnot, but um, it's not E.T., it's not, e. it's not Close Encounters, it's a guy trying to mimic those better movies, and this sort of lacked an emotional involvement from me. Although, I mean, once, you know, when you just have kids hanging out shooting movies and being really obsessed with movies, I'm sort of a sucker for that. But then it transitions to where that's not even a part of the plot. And that's sort of... And then, like, I'm normally a sucker for sentimentality, but I just didn't think the payoff towards the end worked in any way. So I was kind of like, I shrugged my shoulders when it was over and went, it was all right. I had a good time while watching it, but I'm not... It's not a high recommendation or anything.
3: That was by the way, the the Jamie Lee Curtis movie you should check out is Road Games. And I believe it's actually on Netflix. Road Netflix games. Instant. It's a yeah, it's an Australian movie. There's a great uh Ozploitation movie what was that called? Um Wizard of Oz. No, not not quite Hollywood. And there's oh. a great documentary about um exploitation movies in Australia. Yes. And that was part of it. Yes. Um, anyway, the one thing. I am interested in. Uh, I'm not a big summer blockbuster guy. I'm um, not either. Normally, I just but wanted to kill. The one some thing time. that was sort of interesting about interested in a Super Eight is I do love movies about like twelve year olds. That's yeah. probably like my favorite age to um, watch. I mean, as far as kids go, my favorite age where they're not quite teenagers and obnoxious, but they're not you know little kids who are screaming them, all the time. A couple of them are fall under that category. Oh, but yeah. the two main ones are excellent and sort of
2: you know subdued in the right way and where they're they're more like the kids from explorers than goonies you know they're not screaming obnoxiously and saying shit all the time
3: um which is kind of a relief going
0: all the time like in goonies which is like wall-to-wall screaming also
3: also from from my from from the era of my childhood sandlot i I saw that (laughs) on like uh abc family the other day i and so much yelling
2: yeah it's weird as a kid i did like the goonies but now as an adult i i would much i would watch explorers over and over and over again over the goonies i i feel like joe dante's sensibilities i mean a lot you know his they just really work for me a lot more than um some other people who are spielberg proteges i mean obviously no he's more of a Corman protege i guess Mm -hmm. but still and then um Speaking of Stephen, we're going to transition over to a Stephen King adaptation, because this is a movie I saw once when it first came out on video, and uh, it's a movie that, I don't know, I catch my mom watching it, like, every three months, and I'm like, damn, Mom, you must really love this movie. She's like, I think this is my favorite movie. So I I guess it was about time to uh rewatch this, because my memory of it wasn't too good, and that's uh, Dolores Claiborne. Huh. And... I love this movie now. (laughs) It's definitely up there as possibly being my favorite Stephen King adaptation. Uh, Kathy Bates plays a a woman who is accused of uh, murdering the woman she's been taking care of and nursing for 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 many years, ever since her husband died. And uh, this this, um, accusation leads to uh, the return of Jennifer Jason Leigh, the daughter, uh, Kathy Bates' daughter. I should just say Kathy Bates plays Dolores Claiborne. Um, And a lot of this mystery is sort of um, interspersed with, like, these flashbacks about their relationship and the abusive father and husband that they had to deal with um, in the past and sort of – it comes to fruition about, like, maybe uh, Dolores had something to do with his murder – and Christopher Plummer plays the investigator In present uh-huh. day So, that, he's, so he's, that's the
3: way it's pre- it's presented as
2: a mystery More or less, yes I mean, yeah, no, it's definitely It's definitely more of a murder mystery Cause have you, Slash soap
3: opera Slash drama Have you read the... Because that's actually... I I like Stephen King, but I mostly like when he's not doing horror because when and he, this falls under that category. Yeah, when he yeah, I like, this
0: is from that period in the the early '90s where he was like, I'm going to try and write things that don't involve you know giant spider monsters. And
2: yeah, like right. That. Yeah, I like the real like, monsters here with the abusive. Yeah. You
3: know, uh. Yeah. Stuff like husband. all the the stories in different seasons and yeah.
2: uh, and that ca- that captures this perfectly. It Green captures Mile an autumn, life. you know, st- going into winter in main scenery but um uh, the flashbacks are shot really interestingly where you see the characters in present day but then the camera will pan over and in the background you see like the same character only younger coming through a door but you still see their face in present day or they're looking back at the past through another room which is really interesting oh okay just the no, way i it, see what you're saying just the way it's shot i thought was really um different
3: like almost like a uh, Christmas Carol style where they're yeah. watching it yeah. unfold.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A little bit like that for sure. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee plays the daughter. She's really good in this for me like Kathy Bates owns this movie and she should have won for this over misery because it's a real internal performance. There's not a lot of showiness to it. It relies a lot less on her theatrics and sort of more on the uh, internal torment and, the exhaustion, the exhaustion she's been feeling from having to justify her actions all these years. There's not a trace of Annie Wilkes at all in Dolores. She's not going, I'm your number one fan, or yeah, yeah. he never got in the cock no, car. No, no, no histrionics or right. anything like that. Right, that's the word, exactly. Um, um, right. It's great. I, I don't know. I mean, it's up there with Shawshank and Carrie as being probably my favorite Stephen King adaptation because there's, like you said, not a lot of horror and you just get so invested in these characters because they're so fully realized.
3: Um, that's interesting, though, because I will spoil. I'm going to be spoiling, so if you're a spoiler-phobe, go ahead skip ahead.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put in the show notes, for those who haven't seen like Fearless, I don't know if they want to be spoiled about it, but... I mean, towards the end. I don't know if that's a big spoiler or whatever. But... I don't
3: think it is, but anyway. Go ahead, it's, it's interesting to me that you say it's presented as a murder mystery, because I read the novel, and the novel is done as her giving her testimony to like uh i don't know if it's a grand jury or if it's a police like a detective yeah but it's basically um there is that in there that's that's the framing device and it's It's
2: not not in the movie
3: and in the book but it's from the very first page she says oh i killed my husband um and like it's 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 not presented as a mystery at all yeah Um, i
2: think you sort of get to a certain point where it's obvious I guess that that's what happened but it's more about did she murder the woman that she was taking care of oh right
3: no that too is also not a mystery like that's Hmm. um because you don't find
2: out about what happens with that particular part towards the end
3: I would say yeah I would say with the uh with Dolores Claiborne the book it's it's a little it's got a little bit of uh it's a little like Stephen King is sort of I think like blue-collar porn (laughs) <laughs> sort of, if you would call Super Eight, yeah, like Spielberg porn. That, like, he he's kind of like gets off on just like super blue collar. I'm rough around the edges. I don't care who knows it. And there's a, I mean, did, can I ask you this? Um, is there that classic Stephen King like baby talk uh, slang where people are just mm. like saying like retarded just sounds? <laughs> as, as, nah,
2: not too much. I think maybe the abusive father because he's so slow. I don't know, maybe a little bit of that, because he's just a regular blue-collar cl- slob who just likes to come home and drink beer and watch TV and, right. you know, um, abuse his wife. So he's kind of an idiot, obviously. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I, there's just something about this kind of, it's a very humanistic story, and it's kind of relatable, despite it, it, goes, in, it goes in some really dark places. And I don't know. I found it a lot more effective.
3: And I mentioned I love Kathy Bates. Yeah. I really love Kathy Bates. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, you should. Um, I I don't think I've ever seen Kathy Bates be bad in something.
2: No. She's, one of my favorite performances of hers in Primary Colors, where oh, John Travolta, so where John Travolta plays Bill Clinton. <laughs> it's a really good movie, though, despite
0: Probably, that. Uh, the Travolta's best kind of modern-day performance as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. It's a good movie about the death of idealism in politics and how it changes somebody who that's an, goes... That's
3: another one where I haven't seen the movie, but I read the book. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in that. And one really
2: quickly, I would, normally we just talk a couple of movies, but I wanted to bring up Electric Dreams, um, because I'd seen this when I was a kid. <laughs> you were, you were in telling 19, me the premise of this. In 1985, I saw this as a kid, and I thought it was cute. And I watch it later, and now I really like it a lot, <laughs> because it's so ridiculously dumb. Um you know it's not it's not as clever as something like short circuit i guess but it's got that same sort of sensibility about it in which a computer has real human emotions and sort of you know comes to life and helps out this guy who's you know sort of a sort of a nerd and he can't really connect with women and so the computer decides to give him advice help out his credit it becomes like his pet and his best friend at the same time helps him manage all the electrical units in his house Um, And then the new neighbor moves in, played by Virginia Madsen. And the computer decides, you know what? I really want that woman that you're, you know, longing for. (laughs) So the computer tries to win her over by helping her out with her compositions, because she's like a a, a cellist. And so the computer starts creating music for her to play with, I guess. (laughs) And... (laughs) There's some really ridiculous stuff in this movie, and Jeff Lynne of ELO did the score. Um, it's painfully dated. It's dumb, but I, I I liked it. I I don't know. It's it's maybe there's some nostalgia who does, coming. Who there. does the voice of the computer? Bud Court, <laughs> and he's perfect. Can't think of a better computer voice than Bud Court.
3: I'm trying to I'm trying to picture right now how uh number one how a computer flirts. <laughs> Number two, how a computer with Bud Court's voice flirts. Like I can, I can see Hal being like a smooth operator. Like yeah. you know, I I can definitely. It's a manipulative computer, dude. yeah. Oh my you, you god, you gotta see Hal? what he does. He does Hal? some crazy dark shit. Hal Hell has got a, a sexy little voice, actually. No. <laughs> I don't know.
2: I feel like that, <laughs> there's something going on here. You know, there's like, I guess, a little commentary about
3: technology. Is it a, But is it mostly a comedy or does it turn it's, into like a horror movie at the end where it's, it's like, we've we stop the computer?
2: Well, I wouldn't say it's that horrific. It's more comedic than anything else. It's It's a romantic comedy with just a very strange science fiction element to it that's, you know, I don't know. And Virginia Madsen's really charming, as always. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, the main guy in this movie is named Miles. So every time she called him Miles, I just immediately thought of Paul Giamatti. So, I don't know. It's, it's it, you know, what? don't expect high art, obviously, with this premise. But it's, you know, it's it's light. It's fun. I don't know. Right. I liked it. Speaking That's of, it.
3: Speaking of light, uh, I saw a movie in theaters um, this past weekend. Uh, I saw Light of Day with Joan Jett. No, I. Michael J. Fox. Shine a light, uh, the Rolling Stones documentary. (laughs) I saw Midnight in Paris. Oh, good. Um, I'm not. I mean, Woody Allen is my favorite director, um, but I don't always rush out to see his movies in theaters um, because he is not a consistent director. No. And I don't. I I can't afford to go to the theaters enough to waste my time on like mediocre movies. But this has got a lot of buzz on it from Cannes. From all those critics, and so I decided to give it a chance, and it is delightful. Um, it it's about Owen Wilson, and again, uh, I I don't know how to talk about it without because I want I I didn't I didn't even watch the trailer or even know the premise before going in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't know, how to, and so before we, did it the is a sh- hard movie to talk about when you don't know what. Yeah, happens before. I don't, but it's not a spoiler thing. This the, the thing I'm going to talk about happened in the first twenty minutes. But again, if you're a spoiler phobe, go ahead and uh, skip this. But yeah, it's minutes. um it's sort of a mix of uh, his the movie he wrote played against Sam and uh, Purple Rose of Cairo. And in it, um, Owen Wilson plays a uh, sort of sellout Hollywood screenwriter who wants to be a novelist and. He's in love with Paris, the city, and I think I think Woody Allen's like one of the last directors who really loves sort of urban areas. I don't. That's one thing I sort of feel is missing from a lot of like new directors is you don't get that sort of gritty like thing the early Scorsese movies or um, you know or uh, Friedkin the way he would shoot L.A. or mm-hmm. New York and stuff like that. And Woody Allen loves Paris, and I mean. All of his movies, like, the past five years have just been, like, European travel logs. Right. Where... I don't have a problem with that. Cause no, I don't, not, I'm not all. Gonna
2: be, I'm not going to be able to afford to go um, to these countries anytime yeah, soon. No, it's
3: funny, because I think it was Spain was the first one that was like, hey, if we give you money to make a movie that takes place in Spain, will you do it? And he goes, yeah, of course. Um, and then after that, he went to France, and his next movie is going to be in Italy. So this hmm. is kind of, kind of fun. Um, but anyway, it's about Owen Wilson, he's this, uh, he wants to be a novelist and he loves Paris and he's walking around the city at midnight and he when the clock strikes midnight, he gets transported back to the 20s and he gets picked up by F Scott Fitzgerald uh, <laughs> in their car and gets taken to a party um, where he uh he sees uh, oh shoot, I forget the composer. Um now I'm, now I'm upset I can't oh, Cole Porter, he meets Cole Porter. Uh, and he meets Zelda Fitzgerald. And it's basically, like, one of the premises of uh, Play It Against Sam was the way uh, Woody Allen's character sort of dealt with things was by talking to his sort of projected image of Humphrey Bogart. Because to him, Humphrey Bogard represented everything that was manly and strong. Right. And it's And it's a light movie. It's very silly. Like, at times it feels more like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure than anything, uh-huh. where it's... Where like just people pop up and it's like oh hi I'm Thomas something Elliot it's like you mean T S Elliot (laughs) and that's funny and like in a single scene Salvador Dali Man Ray and Louis Bunnell like all just sort of walk in and introduce themselves (laughs) in order it's like it's like and the 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 uh, the performances of the characters are very light and very I mean it's not it's not Saturday Night Saturday Night Live level. It's not Walk Hard, where it's just like absurd, but it is. It's it is very. It's not a biopic about you know all these people. Um,
0: now is it like is it like Back to the Future, where Owen Wilson is giving these guys uh, the inspiration for their their future work?
3: No, actually. Well, the thing about yeah, see, that's what I thought it would be. Um, and there is there's one joke like that where uh, he gives uh, Louis Bunnell the idea for. I think what's the you know movie called the dinner party? Um, yeah, yeah. He gives him the idea for that, and he oh. he he tells him the premise, and Buñuel goes, "I don't get it." <laughs> <laughs> and but uh, it's more about uh, it's more about like how we interact with our idols, um, okay. and it's and it's and it, which is a interesting idea. One of the things I love about this movie, it has a lot of flaws. Um, there's a romance that doesn't that isn't great. The right, like again, like I said, he, Woody Allen's not as funny as he used to be, so the humor isn't, you know, as great as it is. And it's, and like he, he's with his fiance, and it's very clear from the first two minutes that they're not Compatible. like they, they just hate each other. Right, but it still plays it like, oh, I don't know whether or not I should leave her, and and it's and you know, Amy, Amy Adams plays his fiance, and she has like, m- Rachel, not, no, Rachel, Rachel McAdams, McAdams, my mistake, um, and she has like no. Um, she's like completely shallow and has no depth at all. So it makes it, it gives it, I mean, there's, there's problems with the movie, but no one's making these kind of little interesting movies that explore ideas. And I think that's what Woody Allen's so great is. I mean, I don't think Zelig is a really great movie, but I do think it's an interesting movie and it's, and, and, and more, more importantly, it's his first movie that has felt personal. I think Hmm. like really personal since, uh, maybe it's sort some... of like a parable about nostalgia too a little bit yeah right? it's a little bit about nostalgia but it's also i think mostly it's about you you know you idolize people and it, it's funny i saw that after i met john waters who's definitely one of <laughs> someone who inspires me i'm not a, i'm not the biggest john waters fan but i do love that he is so confident in his ideas that he has come up with his own aesthetic and his own idea of what a good movie and what, what's funny and what, you know, and all that. And he's completely confident in that. He's not, he's not trying to be punk rock. He's not trying to be um, a gay icon. He's just trying to be him. And he has complete supreme confidence in himself. And I, and that's something, and it's, and there's, there's that idea of, you know, he meets Ernest Hemingway and, Hemingway represents to him all of these things about being manly and about integrity, about you know everything that he isn't because he's a screenwriter who you know picks up rewrite jobs and stuff. Yeah, um, and you know, and he and he meets Fitzgerald and he sees Fitzgerald problem, you know, troubled marriage with Zelda. By the way, Zelda, uh, Zelda, not Rubenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Zelda, Zelda, he meets Zelda Rubinstein. Walk
1: into the light, what do you have? Yeah, he,
3: he meets Zelda Rubinstein and he goes, oh my god, your scene in Poltergeist changed my life. Um, no, uh, Zelda Fitzgerald is played by Allison Pill and she's very funny in it. She's very yeah, good. Yeah, I'm
2: starting to get a crush on her. Yeah,
3: me too. She, you know, She, she
2: reminds in, me of uh, Aaron
0: Sorkin's new show. Oh, really? Oh, yeah.
2: I didn't know this was taking place. Awesome.
3: Um, yeah, she, Jeff she...
0: Daniels uh, as as fake Keith, Ol- Keith Olbermann. Oh, that's cool. Is that Jeff
3: I didn't I didn't I heard wow. about the show. I didn't hear who was gonna be the
0: Yeah, it's uh it's an HBO show. I think it's an hour. Uh it's basically Jeff Daniels plays the kind of Keith Olverman guide that I believe fires most of his staff and has to bring in a new staff, and it's like Jeff Daniels, Marissa Tomei Sam Waterston, Allison Pills in it. Nice. Uh and then some some theater people as well. Cool. That sounds
3: great. Yeah. Oh man, that sounds. That actually sounds really good. Alison Pill, she might. She who's the redheaded girl from uh, Six Feet Under? Lauren Ambrose. Lauren Ambrose. Yeah, she looks a little bit like her. Yeah, very cute. Anyway, um, and and of course Woody Allen is in love with cities, and the um, Midnight in Paris actually opens with a, like it's pretty much a direct homage to Manhattan, where it's just um, Parisian uh, music, you know, accordion music and stuff playing while he. Shows various still shots of Paris at night and day and mm-hmm. all the bustling activity and it being alive. And no one like shoots it like him. I've never, you know, people don't, you know, shoot cities and, you know, I, I don't want to turn this into Woody Allen podcast again, but I just love the, you know, the way he does it and the way he makes it as important as the people.
2: I think I'd like this movie even more if like Woody Allen himself was in this, and he just ran into you know Bergman and Fellini, and was like, "Man, you inspired this movie I I'd made."
3: <laughs> so you would you would want the uh, Charlie Kaufman version,
2: probably, yeah.
3: Where uh, not
2: a little too meta at times, I and it know. actually
3: it actually has like an Inception quality at one point where oh weird he goes back in time like he goes back in time to the twenties, and then mm. while he's with this girl who. This, there's this girl who thinks the 1890s were the best time in France, or uh, she, she then she goes to the Moulin Rouge and uh, you know she meets all of those you know painters and all of that, and then she taught. So they have a conversation with the painters and the painters are talking about how no, no, the best time was the Renaissance, and hmm. it's and it there is that. You know there's the other idea where you we we romanticize and you know even fed feti- again this almost ties into Super Eight where we sort of almost fetishize a certain era, yeah. of history. No, um, that's definitely true. And I'm sure that's true of Woody and Allen. Sometimes it's, sometimes <laughs> it's your childhood. Yeah, of course. Cause, cause that's he the grace. I mean, yeah, he lives in a world and that's, that's what makes this movie so personal. I mean, he lives in a that's world cool. where okay. rock and roll doesn't exist. He doesn't do anything with technology. I mean, that's, that's why whenever he tries to like write young people, it's always super dated. Mm. Well, I look All
2: forward right. to uh, Woody Allen's next yeah. movie, super eight and a half. Yeah. Which
3: uh, is, which is, <laughs> that's uh, that's actually, that's actually a yeah. That's yeah. very good. Thank you. Um, what else he's did had watch? two eight. He's done two eight and a half homages already. True. Uh, all right, and then uh, my other movie I watched. Uh, I got the Blu-ray of uh, Menace to Society, mm. um, which I've been I've been super into hip hop recently, and then I'm no. listening to you know not you. <laughs> well, it's it's yeah. So like the past several months or so, I've just gotten super into it, and I was listening to uh, just all G Funk and all L.A. Um, music from the early '90s, and I started to realize, oh shit, I haven't seen Mass Society* in a while. So I went back to watch it, and it is great. There, it's it's like it's such a great coming of age story, and there's so many great moments in it. And it's it's not a perfect movie. It definitely feels like like the the narration is a little show or a little telling, not showing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean. I can never watch it without comparing it to Boys in the Hood, right? Um, and it's, I, think it just obviously is superior in every way because it avoids the sort of direct preaching of Boys in yeah, the Hood. But definitely in the third so, act,
0: I saw Boys in the Hood for the first time recently, yeah. and after like reading up, that's one of the movies that like, got lambasted on various forums. That oh right, were not yeah, frequent for years, and I actually didn't think it was that bad. I don't think it's a bad movie. I don't at think all. it's
2: horrible. No, I just, I just, um, it gets too preachy and it gets a little too forceful with. The message, and not, and also just trying to evoke emotion in a way that I thought was right. kind of manipulative. But you know, yeah, no, that's I think not it's, a bad thing. I
3: think all. it's a good movie. I think I'm, I'm, still surprised when I watch it and I see Ice Cube because that because he, I mean, it's always weird to see him act act well because he's not always
2: good at acting. Uh, he's very hammy and
3: higher learning. Uh, <laughs> but he's good in Three Kings. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, he has, yeah, he definitely has his own... Um, and also. Quick, quick aside, did you know he directed a documentary uh, for ESPN's 30 for
0: 30? Oh, Yeah, no. about the Raiders.
3: Yeah. I need to watch some of these because I've heard good things I, about them Me this. too. I, they're,
2: they're the, two... the
0: best one, especially if you're in New York, LA, the best one's about, I think it's June 19th, 1994, and it's about the day of the O.J. Simpson freeway chase, and the end of the Masters, Mm -hmm. and the last game of the NBA Finals, and it's really interesting because it's actually all done from pre-existing footage, like there are no talking heads, no interviews, it's just cut together from footage that was recorded on the day from like press conferences, and you know, news feeds and things like that, and it's really kind of fascinating the way that it cuts together because he actually goes and he uses... The 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 tape of, of guys before they were on the air, so you've got things like Bob Costa saying, "We don't know what's going on, we don't know what's going to happen," and things like that. So it's a really interesting take uh, hmm. on on just not just that those events which we're all familiar with, but also um, the day uh, and documentaries in general.
2: Wow, that's a really interesting sort of juxtapos- juxtaposition. Yeah, approach.
3: I, I the AV Club was covering them, and that was definitely one of the ones I was interested in. That okay. oh, that okay. and the uh, Two, what's what's the one about Pablo Escobar? The two Escobars, yeah, two Escobars. That sounds that sounds really great. Yeah, that sounds um, really good. So anyway, um, yeah, I was looking at the DVDs that came out recently, you know, just in time for Father's Day, and I was very surprised that Ice Cube directed one of them. Um, but anyway, because you were going to get your dad New Jack City. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I don't think Ice Cube was in it's that. Ice T. Damn it. <laughs> Fail. No, I was going to get him. Surviving the game. Damn it. Uh, I was going to get him. Tank. God damn. Okay. Um, there's a,
0: You're gonna get him Law and Order SVU. Uh,
3: messed up. <laughs> Alright. Um and like there's the way Menace Society is shot is actually like really good. Like the Hughes Brothers did a really great job. There's one shot in particular, again, it sort of goes back to the idea of things you remember. Like there's one shot in particular, where they're having a barbecue in like a uh, in like a park, like a public park, and it cuts to and it cuts from this. Fucking delicious-looking, uh, like uh, rack of ribs, you know, just dripping <laughs> with sauce, and it's—I love ribs, so I was just like, "Oh, it looks great." And it—and it, the ca- camera sweeps from that to uh, one of the one of the friends who is sort of a born again Muslim who is preaching, again, and he's—and you see him, you hear him, like in the middle of a conversation, just being like, "And it, but it's dirty, it's filthy, you shouldn't eat it," and uh, and he's like t- he's like saying all these reasons why you shouldn't eat pork. Um, and I, uh, and then it, and then it cuts to like, um, O-Dog, uh, played by, uh, Laren's Tate. Yes. Um, and Larenz Tate's like, look, I don't give a fuck. That looks great. I'm going to do it. And like, that pretty much sums up the entire movie of you see something amazing that you want to have. and And then you, and then someone's telling you. Oh, you, you shouldn't do that because it's wrong for these reasons. And it's When well, like, you can
2: summarize the theme or a plot in one instance. Yeah, in like one. And oh, yeah. it's, it's such a. I That's love when that great. happens. And yeah, it's such a too. great
3: encapsulation of the movie. And um, I love Menace Society. But it, again, in the third act, it gets a little preachy, especially the, uh, the ending. I think the ending. I can't remember Boys in the Hood ending exactly, but I think the ending's like identical almost. Yeah, yeah, the, it, it is. Where the the person who's trying to get out like got, gets gunned down, and mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. All right, really, damn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: that's that's my reaction at the end of both movies. Just
3: damn. Yeah, and then uh, I like I really like the Hughes brothers. We should do the Hughes brothers because I love Men's Society Dead. But you dead hate presidents. the
2: Breakfast Club.
3: John, yeah, John Hughes. John, you, not the many John people Hughes, know that John Hughes is one of the Hughes brothers. Right? He's like a. Uh, you know, uh, he he's like, um, I'm trying to think, no, the Way- I was trying to think of a Wayans brother who isn't in all the Wayans <laughs> brothers, it's not, it's not coming to me. He's the Adam Bald one of the Hughes brothers. There you go, he's <laughs> the go. Adam Bald of the Hughes brothers. Um, anyway, so those Good are the... Good choices. Yeah, those are my two movies. Um, Brendan?
0: Yes. Yeah, I watched uh, a couple of things, I won't take up too much time. Uh, first thing I watched this week was I watched Catch Me If You Can, because it won a bunch, or it won... Uh, the musical version of it won some Tonys. So I was like, that's a really fun movie. I, I didn't even
3: know back. they had a musical version of that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, Mark Shaman, who did uh, Hairspray and does like the Oscar numbers, he actually did the music and I think the lyrics for it. Um, so they did a, a musical version of that. And the guy that played Carl uh, Hanratty, the Tom Hanks character, won Best Lead Actor in a Musical. At the Tonys, um, and he's one of the my favorite kind of theater actors. So I kind of want to go back and, and, and look at the uh, Catch Me If You Can because I remembered it. It's a movie that I watch. I've watched a couple of times over the years, and I always remembered it fondly. And uh, I definitely think it's it's Spielberg's best uh, after Munich of his of his recent output. I think it's just a very fun movie, but it's got a lot of got a lot of weight to it, particularly in. Christopher Walken, who's, you know, yeah, he's, he's kind of got the Christopher Walken voice, but he like he uses it to uh, to good dramatic mm-hmm. effect. Totally. Um, agree. And the other thing I, I really liked about it is I just want Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks to do another another comedy together <laughs> because they're kind of uh, interplay back and forth. It's just hilarious to me. Sometimes. Yeah, they
2: should do it like a screwball comedy kind yeah, of thing like the so, uh, what's that Stanley Tucci movie where it takes place on a boat?
3: oh uh the, the imposters yeah the imposters yeah
2: that i could see that working out between the two of them
3: that'd be fun oh stanley tucci going back stanley Tucci's a great director or actor oh, yeah. turned director yeah big, big night <laughs> is is outstanding uh he directed a remake of uh um blind date not the uh not the bruce willis
2: yeah and there's a movie not- with him and ian holm where ian holm
3: plays a bearded dude
0: Joe Gold's Secret. yes
2: excellent movie you'd like that one patrick
3: i love yeah. every everything i see of stanley tucci makes like i've I've seen clips of him in burlesque and i'm like oh he's great in this <laughs> mm. i'm sorry so anyway i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt
0: no 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 problem i mean i really i enjoyed catch me began i definitely think it's one where you can look at it and you can kind of you see that spielberg really hasn't lost it although he may kind of be repeating in terms of his daddy issues and things like that in terms of his his skill as a filmmaker there are just some some shots none of which i can remember now but th- there's just the way that movie is filmed where you're clear that this is a guy who a knows what he's doing and b having a lot of fun and it's clear that after all these years he still really loves his job um so i thought that was that was a that was a, a fun revisit was that the Did same those year those as uh, want,
2: sorry what? What was, was that the same year as minority report
0: Yeah, it was Minority Report, which I actually rewatched again a couple months ago and just couldn't make it through. I was like, why does this movie have to be two and a half hours long? Hmm. Um, I think especially after kind of falling back in love with film noir, uh, it's clear that that movie could have been told in, you know, 110 to maybe even 80 minutes if it needed to. That's probably true.
2: That's probably true, but I still still love it. Um, Mm -hmm. I have, I don't know, there's something about, obviously, the way it ends... That's not mm-hmm. entirely satisfying, especially when you think of Philip T- K. Dick always mm-hmm. having like a sort of dystopian ending right. and, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I still, that was a banner year for Spielberg though. I think yeah, two completely definitely. different movies and very assured. and. Well,
0: style. I mean, I personally don't have the problems with Minority Report that some people do and I mm-hmm. think the whole, oh, it's a dream ending is, is kind of silly uh, that people kind of try and project yeah, out with the movie. I don't I, see that. Yeah, I do think that the movie would have been improved uh, a lot better if they had kept the original title card, which um, or original end of the narration, which would have been something like, the following year after pre-crime was invented, there were like 179 murders in the District of Columbia. Right. Um, I thought that would have made the movie a little bit stronger. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, between that and Catch Me If You Can, it's definitely something where Spielberg... Still still has it. And right. I'm excited for War Horse and then Lincoln next year. What, yeah. is,
3: what is the plot of War Horse? I know it's about well, a War horse in World actually, War I. It's
0: based on a kid's book and it actually also, the play version of the book, also just won Best Play and won a bunch of Tonys. But it's about uh, – it's kind of like Black Beauty uh, from set in World War II. It's about a oh, horse that yeah. gets kind of uh, enlisted in to go fight for England in World War I. Uh, I said World War Two in World War One, and his owner uh, has to go and, like, find him. So it's very much kind of a Spielberg's whole boy and his dog thing. and But it's very much about kind of the horse goes through World War One and has experiences and sees the horror there and interacts with people. So I guess it's a little bit Forrest Gump, a little bit E.T. It looks like it's a lot of different things. Yeah. So, yeah. But I'm just excited to see Spielberg work in a period that he really hasn't worked in um, before. Cool. So – yeah. Real quick though, the other thing I did watch, which I really enjoyed, saw it for the first time, was uh, Mississippi Burning with Gene Ooh. Hackman and Willem Dafoe. Yes, uh, Stephen oh. Tobolowsky.
2: Yes, this movie's great. And Stephen Tobolowsky. Yes, mm-hmm. one of
0: his uh, his first parts, if I I remember correctly.
2: Yeah, so. one of his more significant roles for sure. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, one, and I mean, I I really enjoyed it. I kind of went into it expecting it to be kind of a White people saving the the oppressed <laughs> black person, and there's definitely a little bit to that and it's definitely kind of takes some some pretty significant liberties with with its history right. but uh I was actually inspired to to go back and see that um hearing Patrick talk about kind of gene hackman's moral uh certainty on the the sam Raimi podcast, and I, I wanted to Good. kind of see that because I've been kind of reading about that period a lot and I wanted to and i hadn't seen it, and I thought it was. First of all, I just thought it was gorgeous to look at. Like, I thought the cinematography, and it was just, just beautiful in a number of things. I thought it was, you know, I thought it, while it was historically kind of questionable, I thought it was emotionally accurate in a lot of ways. And I also sure. liked that they were able to contrast kind of Willem Dafoe's and Gene Hackman's approaches to solving this, this crime in two ways where you could both see their sides, and both of them were just so certain that what they were doing there was the right thing way that it led to a lot of interesting dynamics between them
3: i heard i uh Stephen toblaski was on uh, mark maron's what the fuck podcast right right right. he was yeah. talking about it and he was talking about how like they painted the sets like strange colors and he, they didn't understand it and then they saw the dailies right and it was oh shit because uh oh no it was it was like the skin tones popped because yeah. everything was all the sets were um um the... it was
0: like a greenish tint or something right right yeah yeah the other the other great tolowski story that he tells about that is that in that big rally scene where he's speaking to the rally and they actually don't show this in the movie which i was kind of surprised at, is uh they actually got a lot of local uh clansmen and things like that to come out and be extras in that scene and they had steven oh, tolowski yeah. stay uh give his speech and kind of start in the, the, the tamer stuff that's in the movie. And then I guess there was additional, like, incredibly horribly racist things that he had to, like, say. And the minute he started saying that, the crowd started just going nuts. And that's actually what you see in the movie is their reaction to the, the racist stuff instead of the, the stuff yeah. you actually see in, in the reverse.
3: Yeah, it's really, yeah, that's also, really Also, cool. and this might just be me, but I feel like since that movie, every clan leader I've seen represented has been a Stephen Tobolowsky type <laughs> <laughs> wasn't the clan leader, I mean, I could remember, wasn't the clan leader in Boardwalk Empire sort of like a nebbish white guy?
0: I don't know. I didn't, I haven't caught up on Boardwalk okay. Okay. Empire, but that's definitely one of the more uh, kind of, I think people forget is just how uh, intrusive, you know, racism and, and, and the Klan was and, and still is in, in, in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. the folks that you wouldn't think are, you know, especially in today with a lot of the rise of of, of right-wing or or hate group organizations, neo-Nazis and things like that, is that they're going after uh, guys that you wouldn't think are typical, uh, you know, kind of your typical idea of, you know, a, a redneck southern clans right they do kind of look like nebbish guys or in this case you know white collar guys that maybe you know have lost their job or whatnot not to digress but i think it's definitely it definitely felt emotionally true in a lot of ways and what um I, I, though, you know it in what ways
3: was it uh, his, did you feel it was historically sort of questionable
0: well i mean the the fbi had 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 it in for for uh, martin luther king and kind of the uh, a lot of the the African-American organizations at the time for a while, and it wasn't until, you know, these two white kids got murdered that they had to, like, go and step up, and the movie kind of presents uh, the FBI as the saviors, and, you know, it's like an army Mm. of FBI agents, and there's Uh, that funny scene where Kevin Dunn is basically saying, the hotel doesn't like our FBI agents, and one of his foes is like, well, buy the hotel, and he's like, well, how much should I spend? Whatever you can. So it's very much, like, (laughs) kind of like they're going to do whatever it takes because they know what is right where really in reality the fbi had to be dragged kicking into screaming and protecting some of these guys and really it wasn't until lyndon johnson threatened j edgar hoover with uh, political reprisal that hoover started to you know make sure that the the kids that were going down to the south were protected so
3: Hmm. very interesting yeah yeah,
2: excellent i mean in the other i I gotta rewatch this now (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's a it's a really really good movie, and I think yeah. if you're a fan of Gene Hackman, Patrick, you'll really enjoy it. And I also, am mm-hmm. yeah. also uh, what's his name Frankie Faison? No, Frankie Faison, the guy who plays Burrell on The Wire, right. uh, plays a minister in it, and also uh, Eddie from Family Matters is a is a kid in it. <laughs>
2: nice. Yeah, he was also in uh, Big Shots, which is a really horrible movie from 1987.
0: I did not see Big Shots. No need. It no need to see it. I was like who's that kid? Like, I recognized him and then I looked him up on Wikipedia Is like, oh, it's Eddie from Family Matters. <laughs> as a
2: kid, as a, in that movie, as a kid, I, I remember this line because <laughs> he's trying to be a badass and he's like, you know, 10, 11 years old or whatever and he comes up to like these um, hoodlums and he's like, I can walk on water, shit ice cream, <laughs> I'm just like, just like, lists off all these ridiculous things. I can eat bullets, walk on water, and shit ice cream. I'm gonna kick your ass.
3: That's that's some impressive alchemy, bullets yeah. and ice cream. Yeah, I know. Uh, when I, I, you know, when I was, a, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, whenever um, I saw like nudity in a movie, it would be like ding, like a little bell would go off my head, and I'd be super excited. I feel that same way now. Whenever I see an actor from The Wire, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like it doesn't matter how small the part, you pause. And... Yeah, I saw Wendell Pierce in uh, It Could Happen to You, right, uh, with Nicolas Cage, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, awesome. <laughs> Great. Well, one of the
0: one of the funnier ones for me is, is uh, Clay Davis in uh, Enchanted, where he's playing, and I think every movie since The Wire, you're just waiting for him to go. She. Yeah. yeah. Even
3: even in Twenty Fifth Hour, he does that.
0: Yeah, and that's actually yep. where he got it from. He yeah. got it. He got it, I think David Simon or whoever saw Twenty Fifth Hour and was like, do, do that. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's really,
3: that's great. She.
2: <laughs> got to see Cedar Rapids, also people, when it comes out on Tuesday. Very enjoyable movie.
0: Yeah, because he's in that too, isn't he? Yes, yes. All right.
2: Let's move on to our director of the episode. We're very excited to talk about Mr. Peter
3: Weir. Weir. You better
1: believe it. Peter Weir made some great movies. He's from Australia, and that's a fact. His theme different cultures and how they clash You need the wrecked and Fearless and Witness Truman Show and the way back Peter Weir made some great movies No, he didn't make Crank And no, he didn't make shafts yeah. Some great movies Oh, he didn't make crash Born
3: in 1944, Peter Weir rose to become one of Australia's most famous directors with 1975's critical darling Picnic at Hanging Rock. A self-described workman director, Weir went on to have a varied career with such films as Witness, Mosquito Coast, Dead Poet Society, and The Truman Show. The first film we'll be talking about is The Last Wave. My field is corporate taxation. Please bear with me. They say
1: that you... Had a fight with uh, Billy Corman, knocked him into a pool of water, and he he drowned. Is is that what happened, Jerry? We didn't know what. What did happen? Billy died. That's song. They're keeping something from him. Why should they do that? Why did Billy die? Things took things. The thing he shouldn't touch. Sort of things. Get things. Could I see them?
3: Fresh off the critically acclaimed Picnic and Hanging Rock, we're went in a decidedly different direction with the 1977 film The Last Wave. The Last Wave is a meditation on faith and racial injustice in the form of a supernatural thriller. And I, if I had to sort of sum up how I feel about this movie, and, um, like, w- the one thing that sort of I- I- uh, overpowers everything else, it's just the incredible sense of dread that pervades um, from the very opening shot, which... Um, which uh, features an Aboriginal um, painting on a on a giant rock yeah. um, that dissolves into his symbols being on a sky like pointed at this uh, small schoolhouse in the middle of the uh, country like it's almost it's it's like it, it's a very slow dissolve um, where it's it's almost like just a warning um, and then what happens next of course is a freak hailstorm Um which is you know very terrifying with broken glass and all that, and it's and what I kind of love about it is the kids at first they they're just so happy to have rain, mm-hmm. and it's it's really interesting how it it how it goes from joy to terror, yeah. Where they're like just cur- cuddled all into uh, the corner of the school classroom, just like screaming.
2: Yeah, I feel like we're views nature as you know just in that scene, sort of summarizing su- summarizing as like you know, beautiful and awe-inspiring, but also terrifying and destructive. And this movie sort of focuses more on the latter in that it creates like a, you know, like you said, a sort of a supernatural world. Um, I, I was thinking when when I was watching this movie, how it was, you know, as it was unfolding, how it felt more and more like, you know, a disjointed dream and, you know, a, a, sort of like a, a, a an a marriage between like Cronenberg and Lynch, but uh-huh. with with Weir's sensibility as like he, he he was really interested in in a stranger in a strange land kind of idea where yeah, I mean, culture he clashing.
0: Said, he said his inspiration for the movie is what if a kind of pragmatic, ordinary guy started to have a premonition, which comes back to kind of something yeah. that Stephen King writes about that we were talking about earlier. Um, and I definitely think that carries through through the film, that it starts off where there's these weird things happening, but then it almost takes a step back where there's this overwhelming sense sense of dread, which I agree with, but then it also almost becomes like a murder mystery where Richard Chamberlain's character is kind of investigating, you know, the murder of this this city Aboriginal and, and mm-hmm. the guys that may have killed him, and you know, clearly there's there's more going on that they're not uh, they're not saying.
2: Yeah, it's almost like he takes a sort of, you know, not necessarily conventional plot and then turns it on its ear but you know having that murder mystery element sort of becomes secondary as 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 the story goes along to yeah. where you know the, this character is sort of having this prophecy and it's so weird not to digress but i I keep seeing a trailer for this new michael shannon movie called take shelter uh. and it seems very similar to the last wave in which michael shannon keeps looking to the sky and seeing this prevailing storm and He's really worried, and he's you know t- trying to protect his family from it, and he he keeps seeing this thing that may not or you know even exist, but i, I feel like the last wave this threat is real, and uh-huh. he's he's experiencing it through his dreams, and the Aborigines see dreams as an extension of reality, which right. is really interesting to me
3: um yeah, and again, and the way we we achieves this sort of sense of dread um it's uh, his, you know, his previous film, *Picnic at Hanging Rock*, was, I mean, I would say lyrical to a fault. Where, yeah, it's it's almost a little. I mean, I found it dull. Where it's just it's a hard it, where it's almost entirely about images and mood and tone, which I like in movies. And, but weird, and I,
0: I almost felt the the reverse where I really love *Picnic at Hanging Rock*, and that's one of the few movies that I like, genuinely like unnerved me for a while and I actually didn't go back and watch it for this because I was like kind of a little scared of of, of the film but with this one I also felt especially during that middle section it was awfully -hmm. uh, awfully slow uh, and and almost dull uh, which I hadn't expected because everything else I've seen of Weir I really have have, have loved.
3: Um, Yeah, Yeah, well... I, I i do feel that the uh it's it's definitely n- not a perfect film. I feel that it's it's sort of it's two storylines you have the murder mystery and you have the premonitions and it's only toward as it gets closer to the third act that you that he begins to realize that they're the same thing mm-hmm. um and I don't think the murder mystery is as intriguing though no. i I do think there's sort of interesting ideas about um just total faith and this this idea that. The, the the sort of conflicting ideas on law in the Aborigin- aboriginal tribes in which mm-hmm. the law is more important than the man and um the as a lawyer he's used to trying to save men with the like the where the right. men is the goal and the law is his tool um but the, the way we does it where he uh has that foreboding in the beginning with images there's this amazing image of um, you know, it's pouring down rain and this person has, it's like almost like a dome umbrella and they reach down into a water fountain. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And it's, and it's, and it's just one of those like perfect uh, yeah. sort of, you could, you could just take us, you could, you could just take that frame of film and hang it on a wall. It just says so much. Um, and again, there's a lot of imagery with water in this. Um, uh, the way it's like, there's a scene in which, what happens is the main character, uh, played by Richard Chamberlain, um, his someone leaves the bathtub on, or maybe, or maybe the bathtub turns on its own. It's sort of ambiguous, but basically, the, he gets a leaky bathtub and it goes through the ceiling. But the way it is shot, you see water creeping down the stairs as if it's yeah. intruding into his home, as if all as if of water is a villain. Yeah, as if all of the rain that's happening outside is breaking in, and it's and it's like this, you know, almost this metaphor for sort of. For sort of his psyche, as as these um, sort of premonitions and dreams start to become realer to him, yeah. And, um, and something I've seen a lot of, uh, even in Fearless uh, or Master and Commander or Mosquito Coast, is Weir isn't afraid to use slow motion to emphasize sort of emotional moments.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And there's uh, and, uh, and I, there's
0: also the end of the Truman Show where he uses that.
3: Uh, oh yeah, uh- I forgot all about that. Um, yeah, we're. That's. I'd say that's one of. I mean, we're. He calls himself a workman, um, but you know there are. Yeah, uh, and I wouldn't. I mean, it would be hard to call him an auteur just because of all the very different films he's made. But yeah, but there are things that go through, and um, they're distinctive to him. I think.
0: Well, uh, I mean, you could definitely make the argument, even though I'm not a big fan of the whole auteur theory, which is probably why I gravitate towards workman guys like Weir, But you could argue that his films are kind of about the the collision of two uh very different cultures or their transition from one culture to another you know and what's interesting about his Australian work is and just to give a little bit of context is that prior weir comes out of the first kind of school of Australian directors that were really given a lot of freedom Um, after a lot of restrictions on what content was was lifted and Australian film school was established and things like that. So he's (laughs) one of these guys that are making kind of films about Australia, and it also kind of dovetails with, you know, kind of Australia coming to grips with its own past and a lot of the the crimes that were done to the aboriginals. So I think, uh, especially in his Australian work, you have that real kind of clash between the past you know threatening to overwhelm the present and then um, that's definitely something where you see it continuing through his work uh, spring to mind you know obviously the clash between one version of reality and another reality in the Truman show or kind of the the blossoming 60s ideology with the prep school nature and dead poet society and even going all the way up to say something like master and commander which is like you know the, the British Empire interacting with you know early darwinism and you know the the islands that they travel through in that
3: absolutely and Mm -hmm. um
0: and of course witness which is you know cop yeah (laughs) Yeah,
3: that's that's a literal fish out of water story exactly yeah um yeah and uh and it's honestly it's kind of i was i was a little worried about the last wave because i didn't know anything about it and the criterion you know criterion always has very sparse descriptions on the back Mm -hmm. and the criterion description on, like, the summary on the back made it sound like it was like a race drama where it was about mm-hmm. this, like, almost like a, uh, like you mentioned, like the white man saves the poor minorities. It made it, s- like, yeah, I it, could see that. Um, it made it seem like that it was a white man saving these aboriginals uh, who are on trial, and it's. But I I do like this sort of um, this sort of foreboding sense of doom. One of my sort of uh, pet interests would be, you know, things about. The apocalypse, whether it's like right. a personal apocalypse of someone just imploding, or, mm-hmm. or, or or just this sort of foreboding sense of the end of the world, and um, and again, it's just it's this pervade. And yeah, you mentioned before uh, we started recording that you think Peter Weir would be an ideal candidate to direct like H.P. Lovecraft.
0: Yeah, I definitely got a real in the mouth of madness vibe, especially near the, the, the end and that final shot with uh, with that and this. It was definitely something where uh, I keep coming back to the quote from Bob Dylan uh, where he's like, there's something happening here and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? That's kind of what I felt about the last wave and also kind of Lovecraft stuff in general, where it's just out of the corner of your eye and you yeah. don't know what it is, but you feel like something and where you are is about to go where he's going very very wrong um, and so that's something where even though I wasn't a big fan of the last wave I thought it came across pretty well
3: and um, hmm. now the uh, the ending uh, yeah that's again uh, spoiler, spoiler alert we're going to be talking about the ending the uh, very last moments um, uh, I would say the story even got a little uh, incoherent towards
2: the end I wasn't too clear on the confrontation like obviously he I think he killed Charlie yeah. from what I understand
0: um, I think the yeah. ending is basically that the, the aboriginals were aware or may have even been especially in the front of the film may have been calling this apocalyptic event <laughs> uh, oh. to, to happen and so he may have come to believe that in stopping Charlie he would have been able to stop this event but it was it was too late, and you know this giant wave was going to consume you know hmm. Sydney or Australia or even all of the world because you get the hints throughout the entire movie that these things these you know these natural disasters are happening not just in Australia but they're happening to start in other parts of the world as well.
3: Absolutely, and yeah. One of the interesting things about it is the last, the very very last moments. Um, the uh, the the tribal ab- aborigines, which um, don't exist in the city, but in this in this film, they uh, they are they exist they exist on the underground to ensure that the apocalypse... I agree with you. That's they're trying to maybe even you know ensure that the apocalypse goes through as as they foresee it. Uh, right. He's dealt with them in the sewers, and uh, he he sort of comes out of a drain pipe onto the beach, and he sees a giant uh, tidal wave, and. What what was most interesting to me is it there was this almost almost sort of a connection to fearless in that there was this acceptance. Um
2: Yeah. It's where, hard to get
3: a good yeah, read on. It wasn't it wasn't terror. Uh I didn't I didn't it wasn't terror at the end of the world. It wasn't mm-hmm. um you know, it wasn't sadness. He wasn't like praying for his kids or anything right. like that. It was and do you think it uh it, it's almost about like the um this the sin like the sort of the crimes of the white men against the original people being you know coming to fruition and being them being punished for it and him sort of like learning th- about I their think- culture and then sort of accepting that?
0: I think that's part of it. Um I also would say that maybe it's kind of and you saw this a lot in America and our dealings with our Native Americans where they would try and almost civiliz- civilize them and they're almost trying to, you know, hmm. make them act like whites without acknowledging their culture. And yes. I feel like a major theme of the movie is that there you constantly hear, oh, the tribes don't exist in the city. The tribes don't exist in the city. The Pia- you know, the, the, the yeah. The animals in the city are just like, you know, working class or, or, or poor white people. Right. And it's like they're trying to – they put – the white man has put this – these aboriginals into a box which they think they can control and the movie is about like because of the overwhelming sense of the past and the overwhelming sense of this this idea of the dreamscape which is something that's prevailing throughout all australian mythology and it really it's almost like a cultural consciousness as would be a pretentious way to describe it where everyone whites aboriginals everyone is kind of sharing this same uh, the same sense of you know there's rea- one level of reality and then there's another level of reality and they've tried to make the Aboriginals fit into a certain portion of reality that they don't belong in and so the movie really seems to be about the the cracks in that starting to be seen and eventually bursting through much like a flood. Yeah, yeah
2: the and Aborigines so. believe that nature is literally alive, yeah. and that it can you know come destroy us and if we don't take that uh seriously then you know it's it's really going to happen and maybe it's sort of correlating you know like the aborigines with nature and because there's been ignorance and indifference right you know now here here comes the wrath sort of speak you know i mean at first it's like you know because i'm so into psychology i want to immediately you know analyze this guy and saying this is all an internal experience that Mm -hmm. he's having as you know as a character and that like you know Freud used to say that, you know, when you're dreaming about a house that's being flooded, you're basically going mad or you're having a flooding of ideas coming into you and Uh you can't, it's too overwhelming. You can't handle it. So it's, so your dreams are sort of telling you that. And in a way that sort of plays out because he's, you know, connecting to this culture that he, you know, never really had a a strong connection with in the past. Uh And I found that, that's that that sort of connection to play out in a in a really terrifying way, rather yeah. than like oh it's going to be harmonious. It's more of actually bad news. <laughs> right.
0: And I mean, just to really quick on what Patrick was saying earlier, I don't think uh, Richard Chamberlain's uh, is reaction at the end is, is different from Fearless, and Fearless you get the sense that you know he's this is something where he's uh, accepted it and he's met peace with it. Uh, whereas with this, it's more of resignation. It's not fear, it's not terror. He's not praying, but he's just like, Accepting well, it. okay. So this is, you know, this is what it is. And it's not
3: but it's depressing not depressing per peace. se,
0: but he's he's like, well, okay. So Yeah, it's not
3: ser- it's not the serenity that Jeff right. Bridges experiences in Fearless.
0: And
2: it's yeah. interesting that, you know, he's he really embraces kind of an ambiguous ending with mm-hmm. those earlier works. You know, obviously Picnic and Hanging Rock was I be- believe inspired by uh, true events that yeah. took place And the, the, a mystery that was not solved right. um,
0: And it's also based on a book Which we were talking about Before right. we started About how a lot of his works are adaptations So
2: Yeah, it's interesting the, the the contrast between those two movies Especially with, you know You look at Last Wave And it's sort of wet and dark And mm-hmm. picnic Picnic at Hanging Rock is so dry And sort of golden and that's I, f- I find that contrast really interesting.
3: And the very first lines of Picnic at Hanging Rock are it's all it's it, I believe it's quoting a poem or something, but it's something along the lines of everything is a dream, everything you experience. Yeah. Um, and there's so there's more of uh, you know, the idea of of dreams, and of course, Picnic Hanging Rock is very dreamlike.
2: Yeah, definitely. And both movies, I I. I I was watching them like late at night as I was sort of drifting into sleep. So I, they they totally worked on my dreams <laughs> and yeah. just, you know, they sort of invaded me in a way that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to revisiting them because, mm-hmm. you know, they're not movies that you can immediately ascribe, well, this is exactly what it's about. I mean, you can have an idea and you can sort of build on that idea. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of joy in going back and maybe, you know, in a few years getting something else out of it that you may not have picked up on the first time
0: yeah yeah his stuff definitely gets under your skin now patrick i know you're a big horror guy would you say that these two films are are, are horror movies in a way how would you i if you had to classify these films how would you describe th- them?
3: i would definitely call uh last wave horror um apocalyptic kind of yes horror. and uh, yeah. in the in the same way that something like maybe changeling um, is uh, Oh the George C. Scott one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not the <laughs> not not the uh, Clint Eastwood right. okay. movie. Um or that sort of maybe but earlier the accents
0: in that movie are horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Like that sort of um sort of seventies where it's just all an atmosphere of dread and you don't even actually know what's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Um there were there were very big uh, obviously uh, Italian Italian horror would be a lot more visceral but there's there's a lot of the same sort of feeling you get from like picnic at hanging rock where
0: right from
3: the very first frame, it just, everything feels askew. Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's not quite happening in reality, but it's not right. like surreal either. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of that in like something like Fulci's uh, like um, house by the cemetery where it's just, there's just a intense feeling of unease through the whole thing. Picnic at hanging rock. It's, it's not like i feel like the the intro uh i feel like the first first act feel is very terrifying um but i feel that the way that um the events spring from that don't, don't exactly feel like uh horror um because it's it's more about like the emotional fallout than mm-hmm. any sense of like most of the the dread and the unease i feel come at the beginning of the movie mhm um
2: and it definitely becomes very literal, I mean not literal, uh, lyrical. And, yeah. You know, as time goes on and on and on. But you know, I I, I don't know. I was thinking like I, that's again. I I felt like I was reading too much into, you know what you know because uh, after seeing Last Wave, I read a little bit about the Aborigines believing that nature was alive, and so I assume that sort of you know seeped into maybe Weir's. Uh, execution of picnic at hanging rock and that like these rocks, these, you know, this, this cavern, this cave, whatever that, that these women are going into is not necessarily literally alive in like, you know, a horror way or something. But like it is the scent, but, but it
3: is treated as its own entity. Yeah. That's yeah. that's um, what I mean. Yeah. It, a- it almost like every time the camera goes to it, the score changes a little, like it has its yeah. own theme almost. Um, and again, they're talking about things coming from the sky in that movie, but it's never—they never get to the bottom of any of it. But I was mm-hmm. thinking it was also maybe about
2: the loss of innocence and repressed well, I mean, it's sexuality. Got
0: that whole Victorian era repression thing yeah. going on. So,
3: i, I my—I guess my only problem with *Picnic Hanging Rock* was I felt like maybe it was like I, these kind of movies. Obviously, you either can you either fall into them or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just. I felt like maybe it was trying to be, not trying to be. I felt maybe it was symbolic of something that I just wasn't grasping. Right. Um, obviously, there was still that sense of dread, but it didn't. It did. It was not nearly as satisfying to me as uh, Last Wave. Um, yeah. Despite- well, I, think,
2: I think one of the the best moments in the Last Wave is a very quiet moment, but it's also just really intense. Um, I, you know, the score in that too with the didgeridoo sort of. Yeah. Being oh my God! Really I had no
3: idea the didgeridoos could be that
2: scary. I know. That, that scene I'm thinking about is with Charlie, um, and he just, like, goes goes to visit him in a room. Charlie's just sitting, like, Indian-style on the floor yeah. in the room, and all he just keeps... And it goes on for a very long time. It's a very uncomfortable scene of Charlie just asking him, Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> just, like, over and over again. I'm like, dude, I'm so freaked I am, out.
3: I am <laughs> such a big fan of atonal scores. Like, I think one of the most effective uses... It's not even music. It's... Uh, but in the beginning of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's – no, no, that's the uh, that's the camera sound. But like oh, yeah. during the credits where it's like weird solar – like shots of the sun or whatever and uh, there's that like just echoing banging and stuff. Oh. There's a couple exploitation movies um, that I've seen that like that came out after Texas Chainsaw Massacre that ripped that off and have really interesting sort of atonal – like scores of just noises and sort of almost like music concrete sort of a thing where it's you could just hear reverse sounds of sand falling yeah. and stuff like that and that's sort of what i got out of this uh out of uh the didgeridoo and last wave where it's 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 just this one droning sound it's just like in the back of your brain it's not even uh a-
2: yeah ever since i saw punch drunk love i've been really interested in how sound is like amplified in some instances or completely turned down or what's going on in the background or why that sound is fitting with this oh and, uh, and another plays out. great
3: example of course would be 2001 space odyssey oh well, yeah that too <laughs> but that also has actual music but right. the uh, the um the uh, more avant-garde sort of music when they find the uh monolith obelisk yeah no
2: i mean throughout most of peter weir's films and we'll get to the rest of his filmography after we tackle our next film he's so good at utilizing classical music and Mm -hmm. different pieces and to accentuate emotion and never in you know you can make arguments obviously with with some with some of his films but i don't think it's ever manipulative i think it completely complements the scene and you know a lot of filmmakers today don't have that sort of graceful um ability i to feel do like that.
3: i feel like a lot of filmmakers today are more on more about needle drops um yeah or more the uh, scorsese tarantino mm-hmm. um the way they end, which i of course i i love i mean
0: mm-hmm. or here is this song that you will recognize and therefore you will have the appropriate emotional reaction oh experience.
3: yeah yeah there's the uh <laughs> there's
0: always that the yeah. um like, let's use All-Star or Hallelujah because the characters are happy or sad.
2: Yeah. Fucking Shrek using Hallelujah. Or <laughs> well, no, there it. was that period from, like,
0: 2003 <laughs> to 2000, seven was when it finally stopped where every TV show used it when they wanted yes. to, like, indicate that their characters were sad. And it was always that – I think it was the, the Jeff Buckley version. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. it was, like, it got used so much. It's Wikipedia's entries, like – it was twenty separate occasions that it was used. For, like, <sighs> Zach, four years.
3: Yeah. Zach, Zach Snyder does that too, um, or I mean yeah. he he used Hollow, He used the Leonard Cohen version, but his where he, he'll just like the songs he'll use are just what is happening. Right? Shockingly <laughs> obvious. Yeah. Um. I. You know. I've actually heard that there there are bands that like were, that they their careers took off because they had, like had a song on Grey's Anatomy.
0: Yeah, like oh. well, I mean, it's like there's there's this whole genre of pop, which is a pop I mean, style of music. I actually kind of enjoy, but I term it Grey's Anatomy pop, which is like <laughs> you hear it and you instantly can like see the scene from one of these shows targeted towards you know women so, and gay men. Yeah, that uh, that, that it would be appear in. So it's like that or Brothers and Sisters, basically anything on ABC. Or
3: yeah, fucking I always, Snow I, Patrol. I always yes, <laughs> <laughs> I always hear that kind of music uh, when I'm when when I'm working at the grocery store. Yeah. They played me both. They play that a hard. lot. Um yeah, I always thought if I always thought if you were clever you could you could make a band and you could have all of the songs actually be about the characters. <laughs> just be like <laughs> Sally doesn't know about Eddie. It was something <laughs> like that and really just
2: you know, I make actually like it when they do that in the eighties. Yeah. Like for movies where
0: they actually literally uh, spell out the plot. Oh yeah, yeah. It's always fun. I like how
3: they I, lo- I loved how they brought that back for Pineapple Express. Uh, one they... of the
0: disappointing things about Hot Tub Time Machine was that they didn't.
3: Do yeah, that. it's true. There's a w- lot of disappointment. Yeah. So that was movie. one of <laughs> them. I like that
2: movie, but it's okay. We can talk about that I'll movie. forgive you.
3: All right. Anyway, I believe we should go into our next movie. <laughs> yes, we yes. should. Because we got a lot to say. Yeah. There was no earthly reason
1: why Max Klein survived the crash of Flight 202. You're alive. Why didn't you call me? I thought I was dead. <laughs> him with a heightened sense of reality i think he thinks he's invulnerable i've seen it with the vietnam vets you want to kill me but you can't and an extraordinary sense of life he and your wife are the only survivors i can't reach she won't talk and he won't admit the crash was bad he says it was good Says it was the best thing that ever happened to him. I can't explain it, but you're safe with me.
3: So what are you telling me? There's no God, but there's you? Is he falling in love with her?
1: It's not love. He wants to save her. He's my best friend. It's like he sent me my own angel. He's not an angel. He's a
3: man. I walked away from that crash with my life. That's what survived. The
1: taste and touch and beauty of life. I won't give that up.
2: Basically, when you were told that you were about to die or confronted with the reality that you may in fact die, uh, you might experience this kind of detachment, almost like an out-of-body experience that is, you know, obviously very terrifying, but strangely calming at the same time. Jeff Bridges plays Max Klein in this movie, Fearless, and he plays a man who thinks he is about to die aboard a plane alongside his best friend. When he survives, he experiences a disjointed form of uh, post-traumatic stress that forces him to attempt reoccurring confrontations with death whenever he is forced to face the reality of not only losing his friend but actually being in that situation and surviving the experience of near-death. Max sort of gets a high from confronting his fears, which is brilliantly personified in one of a few moments, in particular one involving a skyscraper. This is, to me, Peter Weir's most accomplished film. And it features my all-time favorite Jeff Bridges performance. He never a play overplays either emo- emotional extreme that he's going through. And, I don't know, for, for, for me, this is not just another movie. It is therapy. It is catharsis. Um, no other film has allowed me to sort of confront my own feelings about mortality, Because back in 1996, doctors told me to my face that I was going to die. It was the only time I saw my father cry. It was the only time, obviously, that my friends were coming to say goodbye to me. And a lot of this movie sort of captures that um, emotional shift that you go through back and forth and not knowing how to process it. And it's, it's a film that captures both extremes, that sort of overwhelming anxiety that comes with trauma, but as well as the life affirming elation that you get when you accept the fact that you are alive and that is a beautiful thing fearless is why i love movies that's that <laughs> <laughs> you know cuz it it means a lot to me it's it's a hard for it's a hard movie for me to objectively criticize for the emotional connection i get from right. it right so but
3: luckily for you it's also a really fucking great movie Yay! Yes, i just feel yes. that way yeah um it uh, is. I was actually when I when I uh, I knew the knew the premise, and I was wondering how the movie was going to be structured. I was worried it was going to open with the plane crash. Mm-hmm. Um, I just you know that sort of the, the obvious route to go would be he is this the sort of I would say the Robin Williams movie version <laughs> is he's a businessman who doesn't un, you know he's a businessman who doesn't have time for his family and then he goes,
0: Max Coin has a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah, Max.
3: <laughs> and then uh, he he's he's like uh he his is like okay, hold on, let me put your son on and say love you and it's like listen, honey, I got to go. <laughs> and then uh, the plane crashes and he like learns to love life and ugh, I was I was I was worried about that honestly because I mean, I don't know. I, I but I but it's it's not that at all. The the opening of is so interesting and evocative where it's just him um, carrying a, a baby, field. yeah, walking uh, in the field, and there's not a lot of music in the background. No,
2: around. it's just like a low drone. And he
0: doesn't, he doesn't go. Well, obviously the the plane crashed, but he doesn't go until the the money shot of the aftermath yeah. until just the right moment. Absolutely where he's like walking through, and you get more and more, and then you see it. I mean, it's clear. I know mean, we were talking about JJ J. Abrams earlier I but just I kept thinking and watching you... about this is it like it's clear yes. they watched this movie a lot when they were directing the pilot for Lost.
2: Oh yes. <laughs> Cuz that's
3: totally how Lost begins. Um, yeah. and I and I, it's like even you don't even know what's going on and then like you get glimpses of other people just in the background but mm-hmm. it's not there's no like wide shots where you see all these people um because and the thing I think that makes you know Peter Weir so good is uh, you know he does. He has these movies with you know big ideas, but he is very interested in characters. Um, and yeah. that whole scene is just shown through Jeff Bridges' eyes. It's very matter of fact. Um, it's it. There's not big swelling of music when you see the crashed engine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and uh, it, it stays on him, and it and it plays it honestly, and it's only there for the. You know, that would be a big set piece of the carnage, you know, and it, right, I don't know many filmmakers would be able to resist the the big, uh, you know, drama of people look, you know, lost and trying to find their children and crying and ambulances and firefighters and fires raging and explosions in fields. Yeah, that's that, that whole is, scene takes place uh, for about four minutes. Right. All that's kind mm-hmm. of like an afterthought.
2: It's mostly focused on his character and what he's experiencing and he's almost experiencing like a state of detachment from it you know he's 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 acknowledging it but he's not having the typical emotional reaction that many people would have
3: it's almost like he's
0: hypnotized the left the the left turn or the thing that really kind of stole me on it is when he gets off and he just kind of drives away and you get very sensitive on it this is not going to be your typical a tragedy has happened let us deal with it type of movie
2: absolutely no he does the first thing i would do I'd, i'd go take a shower you know, and I've, you know, and <laughs> to wash that experience
3: off temporarily. But and then after the sh- but after the shower, he does um, something that I've I've experienced. And, uh, you know, after obviously I've never I've have not had a near death experience, but I have, um, you know, had very intentional, mom- uh, intense emotional moments. And it's followed by hyper focusing on tiny things. He's yeah. just mm-hmm. feeling his body and the camera, just extreme close ups of him you know, just touching his arms and his legs and, you know... Yeah. Or the the dirt. Yes, he's just, like, looking at a pebble, and it's just...
2: And the way he hears music again after that kind of experience. Yes, because
3: he, uh, yes. he's, he's flipping... That's, uh, that is such a great scene. I forgot all about that. Yeah, he's flipping through all the talk radio, and, of course, the big, you know, news break on every uh, station is, is is the crashed plane. So he finds a Spanish station, and it is the... And you can tell... It is the greatest song he has ever heard in yeah. his life. And there's an interesting connection to Big
2: Lebowski with that song. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that song in Big Lebowski? That's not that exact song, but the same artist did the Hotel California song, which introduces oh. John Totero's character in That's Big cool. Lebowski. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: Um,
0: yeah, I like in that whole kind of first section of, of the movie where you're not, where like he's not even sure if he's alive. He goes, and what's the first thing he does? He goes and he looks up his old girlfriend from high school. <laughs> and I think that's the first sense that you know Max Klein was not a very nice person before the crash and probably isn't going to be a very nice person after the crash. And I really appreciate kind of coming back to what uh, Patrick was saying about how it could be a very typical Robin Williams-esque film, but it, it, it pretty much, you know, it's not afraid to have Max be pretty you know uh unsympathetic in his actions throughout the course of the movie you can almost argue that the second time he has a near-death experience at the end that's what brings him back and that's kind of what almost like inception where he needs to be shocked twice and that he can really start to you know live again and really appreciate what he's gone through both before and after
3: yeah, that I mean, when and when he first sees his girlfriend, you don't even realize that he's married at that point.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. You really
3: yeah. don't know anything about him, and that's your mm-hmm. sort of introduction to the character. But what sort of the first time, ta- the first point in the movie where I really noticed uh, what you were saying is he gets home and his wife is just you know just in tears, and everyone is just right. in tears and so happy and so relieved, and he is just completely callous and just brushing them off and not right. acknowledging their emotional response to every anything mm-hmm. he and that is and that is like sort of a really great choice is that they make him a jerk you know he's yeah he has this like
2: zen like calm but he's also feels like he's better absolutely than everyone else and after
3: experiencing this a, well he feels invincible right. so it's you know he almost it's it's I mean it's not a superhero movie but he feels like a superhero and he you want to
1: kill
2: me but you can't yeah,
3: yeah, there's that there's that great moment after he walks through traffic um, and then there's that, oh man, the camera pulls back and it's just like a bird's eye view of him with the, one of the flag shows. going yeah. right into the corner of the screen. Um, that's also, I should say, I, it may be the corner of the screen. I can't tell cause the only version of this on DVD is full screen, which is Ouch. bullshit. Um, apparently Brendan said he saw it on Netflix since he first saw it on Netflix and it was widescreen there. So widescreen yeah. exists. Either
0: it was, or I was like, oh, I, I don't care t- that much. I'd, be interested in hmm. seeing this. I'll check. Th- no. I'll
2: check. Look at that in iTunes too, because I, I want to say. Rent.
0: I think the printer I was watching it actually switches at some points as it weird. goes from full screen to widescreen, depending on how the shot hmm. is framed. Really? So it's a, yeah. There's a really weird. It's really weird in terms of like what its proper format is. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I'm not trying to go off too much on a tangent, but I, I the other thing I noticed as I was watching it, um, I, I don't know if I should give this away to people who haven't seen Breaking Bad season two. I have not. Okay. I won't do it then. Never mind. I'll scratch that uh parallel. But um when you see Breaking Bad season two, keep an eye out for Jeff Bridges' uh best friend in Fearless. The okay. guy the guy he sits next to on the that's plane. That's where I know from him Star from
3: Trek. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Now did yeah. you see where I was gonna go? I see where you I yeah. was I was wondering when I first saw him. Yeah, that's right. He is Q in Star Trek. That's also where I yes, know him from but yes. mm-hmm. I was like, Who is that guy? And I could not remember. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually, that's He plays very a very significant role in Breaking Bad. Um, now the movie doesn't just focus on him, it also right. focuses on... Rosie Perez. It, it, I mean, it ostensibly focuses on three survivors, but it pretty much gives uh, the kid that he saves the short, the short end of the stick,
0: mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is
3: probably one of my only criticisms is that feels like a little underbaked, um... Yeah, I could see that. It's uh, like it, I
0: mean, I think I think definitely Perez and Bridges are, are the focus of the movie. Yeah, I think yeah. the kid is more of like a, a way for Bridges to uh or for Bridges to kind of experience the the, the crash, not necessarily the kid's reaction, but mm-hmm. the kid's reaction to this guy that that he thinks is his hero and that has saved him and kind of Bridges having to deal with the fact that you know, he's alive, which meant that he's like saved people. Right. So. Yeah. And in contrast to the fact that Rosie Perez had her son, who she couldn't save.
2: And she has a completely different reaction to the crash.
3: Right. Yeah, she exactly. goes the opposite right. direction, where she is practically just catatonic, yeah, not... depressed. Not uh, speaking, not not eating, not getting out of bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, John Turturro, who plays the uh, sort of airline psychologist, yeah. thinks it might be a good idea to get she the two of to them together.
2: Yeah, mediate the situation, yeah. Um, I I like I like John Turturro a lot in this movie too. It's a very subdued and not kind of a yeah, cliche in, performance from a psychologist.
0: Yeah, and on the the flip side, I really although I think it can be kind of annoying. I really like Tom Hulce in this. He's just playing completely unsympathetic and it's yeah. just totally a jerk. And you're like, I hate that was, this guy.
3: That was one of my. I think they spent too much time with the lawyer and too mm-hmm. like I that was I mean again I think it's a great movie. Um, mm-hmm. but I think one of my you know objective criticism i i mean i even had a similar it is such an intensely emotional movie yeah and those kind of movies are hard to make because a lot of emotion is not events you can't mm-hmm. like it's hard to make a story you know arc about someone going through trauma yeah right. and but this is an intentionally a very intensely emotional movie so i mean i had a similar reaction as jim despite you know not really having a near death experience but
0: As did I, I mean, I, uh, I talked about this a little bit, but I definitely, I think it helped me at least recognize the fact that when, uh, I was a little bit younger, I had a event that resulted in some post-traumatic stress and I definitely saw kind of the way I reacted in the event of that, uh, to a lot of the stuff that, that Bridges went through.
3: Absolutely. And there's that, of course, there's that amazing scene, um, with the uh, with the group, with the group therapy, which I thought yeah. was interesting because again, this could easily have just been about Bridges and or mm-hmm. you know and his relationship with Rosie Perez. They could have reined it in, but that that scene gives a lot of face time to you know characters we never see again, right? Um, and it showcases how people have different
2: responses to tragedy.
3: Which again, right. uh, I you know I'm obviously you you see this movie as therapy because you connect to close to, but I think this movie does sort of. Act as therapy in general. Um, It'd be one, just, of the ma-
2: it would be one of the first movies I would show any psychologist Yeah, because you like just, this is how it's, different people. And it's react.
3: exploration. Yeah, uh, I remember. <laughs> I, I remember taking a, a, a psychology class, and we we watched uh, Ordinary People because oh, <laughs> fuck. this this would have been much better. Um,
2: yeah, for sure, because it it, sh- it just shows the wide array of emotions that people go through, and it's like the the, the two. Ma- most amazing sequences in this movie come later. I mean, I, I love the whole movie, but
0: mm-hmm. just to
2: highlight their trip through a shopping mall.
0: Oh yeah,
3: is just like breathtaking. Again, and every every beat works. Again, Ro- uh, Peter Weir. You know, slow motion. It's not used often. It's Peter Weir uses slow motion in a scene where Rosie Perez. There's a woman looking at it through a store window, and she's holding a baby. And Rosie Perez goes right up next to it, yeah. and you know, smells it and touches its hair and it's all shot in, you know, extreme slow motion. And it's just because it's, he, you know, he just wants to intensify this really small emotional moment. Um, and yeah, and you, you, you really, he does a great job of you see that things through their eyes. Like when you see the little, the mom screaming at the little kid because he dropped his ice cream like in any other movie that'd be like, Alright, that's a mom, you know, that's something you see. You see mom screaming. But when when they'd walk by him and they see that, I was just like, That's so absurd. Like <laughs> that's yeah. so Um And it's such a and you know, where
2: that scene goes, let's buy presents for the dead. Oh, I, don't I was know. just about to bring <sighs> that up. I don't know, that is just something And then Bridges sells that. It
0: just it just hits you and you're like my God just
2: sorry. Yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's, and I feel like Bridges just pours all this like humanity into this role. Yeah, that it's he, it's astonishing. I mean, as great as Rosie Perez is in this movie, I think, um, it's it's shocking that he wasn't nominated for this movie.
3: Yeah, um, his eyes, yeah, do something in this movie I <laughs> that I haven't seen like anyone's eyes ever do. <laughs> yeah, just think. but just the way he looks at you. Oh no, or, no, I mean, you not, know what the, he does. Characters he does the same eyes uh, during the dream sequences of Big Lebowski. I was trying to wonder mm. if I'd ever seen him do that before, um, and I was going through my head like, I don't think he did that in Fisher King. I don't. Yeah, yeah he, in Big Lebowski, he does those uh, those like sort of insanely large uh, open eyes that are right. almost scary and how glassy they are.
2: Yeah, but it just seems like he's fully aware of everything that's going on both inside and out Mm -hmm. and just sort of the way he deals with trying to help rosie perez which culminates culminates in an amazing moment and in any other movie you use a u2 song and
3: it's manipulative and in this movie it is unbelievable i that's uh that would would be my tagline if i had to give the the studio tagline i'd say so good they make you 2 good, because I, I hate you 2 but the use of uh, Streets Have No Name is great. What's yes. great
0: about that is coming back to kind of what we, you guys were, t- we were talking about earlier, is his use of music, is then he almost treats that like a classical piece. Like, right. you don't hear no words. wailing, and it yeah. starts very... But then, you know, like, you know for, say what you want about U2, but that's pretty much one of the most distinctive or recognizable, I would say, opening riffs in oh, yeah. like rock of the last 30 years, but... And then it just cuts out at just the right moment. And that's pretty much like the end is astonishing. But I think watching that sequence, I got the same impression that I got, the same feeling that I got when I saw the end of all that jazz, which we were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier. And it was like one of those movies, those scenes where I actually felt myself have an experience where I was watching myself watch the movie and just kind of just experiencing it because it was so intensely powerful. So. yeah
2: no totally it's is like an out-of-body experience th- where you get like the chills and you
0: well yeah. up
3: and I, I liked I like sort of the uh the uh, the take on sort of their contrasting um you know reactions to the to this event where he is almost a nihilist so he has you know, he almost becomes a nihilist and that he just doesn't uh you know he just realizes that they're already dead and that the, the, nothing yeah. means anything so he has no reason to be afraid and But at the same time, that feeling makes him not have connections to his wife or his children, you know? Right. Um, And then her, she takes it from such an intensely Catholic point of view where it's all guilt and shame. And, like, she – there's that moment where she breaks down because she she tells him that she let go of her son. And what she's crying about is that she lied to her church group, you know, or church and her Mm – her priest and it, it, she just feels like a horrible person, and it's and it's such an amazing moment. And it, because it's not about her losing her son, it's about the way that she you know that she took that which is guilt. It's not you know it's not I don't have him anymore. It's I killed him.
2: Right. I I feel like you know weird takes such a an like sort of a, a neutral standpoint in that. Everybody processes trauma in very different ways, and there is no right way, there is no wrong way, it's just, that's how it happens, and you sort of learn to adapt to it, or, you know, you sort of have to acknowledge the fact that you have to experience fear, you have to experience the arrange, the wide array of emotions that life has to offer, and that is sort of, you know, represented in the ending where he actually wants to be saved again, he wants to feel again, he wants to be alive, and... At first, like my, like as a like as a critic, I was thinking, is this ending manipulative? I mean, obviously it works. I think it's gorgeous, and there's I don't really find it to be flawed, but I wasn't too sure where, you know, is the strawberries being symbolic or is it just being a literal, you know, play or whatever you want to call it, a little literal device, I guess you you could say, you know, because well, I
0: mean, I think I think the strawberries. Are somewhat symbolic, but they're also literal in that they they move the story forward because the yeah. strawberries are something where after this traumatic accident he realizes that, you know, he a doesn't have an allergy uh, anymore and b that he can kind of do whatever he wants and mm-hmm. you know he's not going to be killed. But then when he eats that strawberry for whatever reason he has that allergic reaction he starts to go into anaphylactic shock and so, you know, he has that second near death experience and doing that he remembers. What happened on the plane and in such, uh. you know, he realizes that, you know, like you were saying, that he wants to be saved and also, um, you know, that kind of the only way to get through this world is to to live into it. And we were talking a little bit about this earlier when we we're talking about spiritual films. But if the film kind of has a message or it comes down to, you know, a, a whether there's life after death, I don't really think it matters. I think what the film is saying is that in our final moments, whatever Whatever they are, what matters is that, you know, we were good to one another and good to each other. And I think that Bridges and helping Perez and his relationship with her comes to realize that. And Mm. so he realizes that he's been kind of a jerk to his friends and his family. And so that's why he wants to be saved is that because he realizes that he's not done, that his work is, you know, not yet over. Um, Because in that moment where he was comforting the people around him, that he was being as human, as a human could be as alive as a human could be and that he needs to go back and and kind of finish that.
3: Yeah. I, I actually, I took that as, (laughs) well (laughs) said, very, I, uh, I took it as, as literal in that the, um, the feeling of invincibility, um, and the rush he had was like literally changing his metabolism. (laughs) <laughs> to okay. the point where that's
0: definitely true,
3: and then because uh, I mean, when the two moments he, he eats strawberries three times in the movie, first moment is right after the crash, and he just eats a huge bowl of them. Uh, second to moment, I mean, he's on a high. Then the second moment, he's reenact, you know, he's reliving that sort of hero factor because he wants to save uh, Rosie Perez, and yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and he he's and he's feeding it to her, and he's eating it, and again he's on that Ooh, high but the third yeah. time it's after she says she can't see him anymore because okay. she real because she said like she realizes for him to improve you know she saw him as an angel and it, there's that stark moment and again it's so great in that we're you never feel like he's pushing for anyone's view to be the right view or the wrong view yeah I mean, which is also, again, what made the lawyer character feel a little out of place is that like every other character in this movie is so human and you understand where they're coming from, whether it's the kid who's not, you know, like, I don't think the kid really understood what his dad went through and, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, or, or it's, or it's his wife who is getting frustrated with him. Um, they're all equal. And so, you know, she talks to his wife and the wife's like, This, he, you know, your relationship with him might be great for you, but it's not good for him. And that's why Rosie Perez, you know, pushes him away. And that's why, and like at that point, he can no longer keep reliving the fact that he's this this invincible hero. Right. And then when he eats the strawberry the third time, that's why he, you know, he's not on that high anymore. I mean, that's. And not
0: consider that. That's actually a a pretty. Interesting and logical. That, I mean, I mean, yeah. yeah I
3: mean, obviously, it, it definitely works metaphorically as as well. But that's, I mean, I saw it more in a more literal way. And that's like just
2: that. it. It's like as a viewer, you bring you bring yourself to this movie. You bring your mm-hmm. own life experience to it, and you can apply it. And you, uh, somebody could have different interpretations. You know, somebody could sort of take like the forbidden fruit as you know being <laughs> biblical or whatever. And like any any one person can sort of interpret some things i think there's definitely a little bit ways. of the,
3: the way he shoots the strawberries yeah, and, the, mm-hmm. and there's always it's always close-ups of the mouths eating them it's always very sensual yeah because again it's i mean it's about especially the first time it's about him exploring his senses and you know a juice a, a juicy strawberry is as far as foods go that's mm-hmm. you know that's that's definitely up there um
2: yeah i went to Meyer and got a strawberry shortcake yeah after i saw
0: this <laughs> nice movie. yeah now, let me, let me ask you guys this, because um, we were talking a little bit about Bridges earlier, and he's obviously so good, and he's been so good for so long. Do you think there's, like, another actor this could have worked with? Or is it just, you know, because it requires kind of what Jeff Bridges brings to the screen, and I know they're, not, they're obviously not planning on remaking this, but um, is there anyone, like, kind of today that you think could bring to hmm. this... What Jeff Bridges yeah. could bring? It's what such, Jeff Bridges brings?
3: I mean, it's such a unique thing that isn't, oh, no one is as intense as him or no one ha- looks as kind as him. Or, right. Like, it's not a look or it's – there's. I mean, it could work. I think this movie could have worked with someone else, but n- I don't think it could have worked as well. And
0: yeah. there's this
3: right. just sort of je-, je ne sais quoi about it. Like, I just cannot put my finger on his performance, but it – I I think it's because it's so perfectly modulated to never go too big or yeah, too uh-huh. small, and it's and it's the kind of role, you know, that just could have easily gone the other way, and he walks that tightrope effortlessly, as a, you know, as if as if his character would walk a tightrope probably. Say,
2: it is safe to say that this is my favorite male performance of all time. Yeah, uh-huh. and. It's hard for me to picture somebody else because yeah.
3: I, I don't know. I, I mean, I mean, he just going through the rolodex of great actors, Michael Shannon would overdo it in some way, uh,
0: you know. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about Bridges, kind of content, Bridges analogs or like guys today that remind me a lot of Bridges. I always come back to Mark Ruffalo, but even I don't think he could do a good job as, hmm. as Bridges does here. Mm,
2: I don't know. No, so, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah yeah I, we'll, we'll see where ryan gosling goes i'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of on board with gosling i'm not saying he's going to be up to like jeff bridges standards but i i'm I'm always interested in what he does next especially after blue valentine which i think is a phenomenal performance from him so mm-hmm. yeah. um yeah yeah and that we should briefly touch on his uh filmography the rest of peter weir absolutely i think
3: we've talked enough about uh, picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah, definitely. along with uh, uh,
2: why don't you summarize for us uh, the cars that ate Paris? Since I haven't seen that one, well, what what are your thoughts on that one?
0: Uh, I watched probably about forty minutes of it. I thought it oh. was really interesting. I didn't get mm-hmm. to finish it, but I thought what I saw was definitely kind of in the the picnic at Hanging Rock uh, and uh, last wave kind of Australian uh, dread, overwhelming dread. But it was also you know uh, lots of interesting visuals, lots of music, uh, use of music over, you know, action. Um, and as I said before we started, that it's basically like a, a serious version of Hot Fuzz in a lot of ways. It's very much like, oh, those kids today and their hot rods kinds of <laughs> movies. But there's a, a sequence that, that's in the, C, that, uh, the section that I saw that was pretty unnerving uh, and, you know, horrific in not its gra- graphic nature, but also in what it was kind of implying.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Um, you saw I, The Plumber. I saw The Plumber. It's actually a TV movie, according to Wikipedia. I wasn't aware of that. Um, it came out in 1978. It's a very straightforward, sort of, you know, stalker kind of a movie. And, you know, obviously you could think of something like The Cable Guy, but it, Weir brings more of that familiar sense of dread and what the fuck is this plumber up to. You know, and it, it's not like there's an air of mystery. Obviously, he's out there to to wreak havoc on on, on this particular woman, but how it plays out, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty twisted. <laughs> um, uh, but still, it's 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 not one of my favorite weird films. But you could tell it's a it's he's he's getting his feet wet stylistically at that point in time, and you know, it certainly has some interesting uh, camera work, and I I liked it, but didn't love it so.
3: Mm-hmm. And, uh, what's Gallup Gallip-
2: Gallip- Gallipoli. All right. One I did see and I, I liked very much. Um, Mel
3: Gibson's that one. Yes. Yeah,
2: the first of two saying. Mel Gibson movies that, uh, Peter Weir did. Um, and it covers both Mel Gibson and, um, another young man, uh, played by Mark Lee, who's like, a um, a runner, a, a, sort of like a, star athlete of, of sorts and like he, he his father is encouraging him to do that as opposed to enlist in 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 the army the Australian army during the first world war and they get you know involved and it's sort of like it progresses between how these two men met and became friends and then how they lose their innocence in the course of the war and everything and the the climax occurs in again in such a visceral way that it's it sends chills down your spine the way that i think i think it's a a good movie and but i think the ending the especially the last act is what makes it spectacular i think the performances are great i think it sort of provides a very you know interesting portrayal of life in australia during a time and they get involved in a war that they weren't supposed to get involved with and there's miscommunication so i mean I don't know. I, I, I liked it quite a bit, but the way it plays out, it's pretty spectacular.
3: And the next one is The Year of Living Dangerously, which is the other... Um... Yeah, I,
2: that's not one I watched recently, but I did see it many years ago, and I liked it at the time. I think the standout performance... She won an Oscar, I believe. Yeah. Linda Hunt, who plays a man in this movie, and very convincingly. So, Yeah. Um, it is it it's more of a love story, would you say, between between uh, Sigourney Weaver and Mel Gibson? Um, but again, it has the culture clash that that Weir is known for. That's sort of a staple in a lot of his work. Um, and there's some you know a lot of I, I believe communism plays a big significant role in in the story as well. And just sort of how different political ideologies clash between the characters, um, but I don't have a clear memory on that one since I didn't yeah. rewatch that one recently. Uh, did you like that one, Brendan?
0: I have not seen that one. Oh, yet. okay.
2: Yeah, no, it's it, it's good. I remember. I, I should have rewatched it. Yeah, in time, I have but... all these
0: movies kind of um, on my computer. I just haven't watched. I haven't not watched all of them. So. Yeah. But, the, um, the next the
3: next one uh, is one you are a huge fan of, uh, Brendan. Witness.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. uh I would say it's probably my favorite Peter Weir movie. Um I know it's really conventional, but I think it's just overall I kind of have that emotional reaction to it and I really mm-hmm. just I don't understand what it is, but it just I it just touches me in ways that I can't explain. I just think that um visually and kind of story-wise and just across the board uh, it's just a really moving story, and I like that again. With a lot of weird movies, it doesn't cop out in the ending, and that it has um, Harrison Ford's character and the uh, the Amish woman played by Kelly McGillis not get together, um, and that you know he kind of goes back to her world, and he kind of goes back. She goes back to hers, but both of them are are changed somewhat for the better yeah. um, by it. And it's a movie I think, something about you with Dead Poet Society. Uh, a little bit earlier, Patrick. I think it's one that it's its place in the culture and kind of how it's been parodied and kind of homage and things like that. Kind of takes away from how good it really is. And when I saw it hmm. for the first time, I was surprised that you know that it wasn't just oh the Amish are wacky or oh you know here's the scene where they're mocking the Amish guy with their ice cream cone. So, right. Or
3: it's yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not like a more serious version of for richer or for poor. Right. And <laughs> it Kingpin. does feature.
0: Um, <laughs> Alexander Gunnar from Die Hard uh, in a, a, a sympathetic and, and interesting role as one hmm. of the Amish guys.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah. No, good call. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. and and I mean, it's, it sort of starts off almost like a Hitchcock movie with yeah. witnessing, you know, obviously a murder and what takes place after that. And there's more, once again, uh, you know, clashing Going on, and you know, it's again stranger in a strange land, sort of adapting to this new environment, almost as being like you know, not necessarily undercover, but what you call it, like the witness protection sort of thing going on. Too. Well, no,
0: he uh, he has to hide out. Right, he has
2: to hide rep- out. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 a very good movie. I I I liked it, but I think just I wouldn't say that how it plays out is anticlimactic. I think. Because I'm so prone to expecting, you know, how the confrontation resolves itself. I've seen <clears throat> it in a lot of other movies that, you know, it didn't have that intense visceral impact. But I was still ext- way invested in the characters.
3: Um, now his next his next movie also uh, starred Harrison Ford, and that's that's actually one I did see, uh, The Mosquito Coast, and it excellent is movie. it's really excellent. Now. It's a story about a, a man, an inventor who's become fed up with America, and it's he moves to he moves his whole family to uh, a, a tiny, poor village in South America. That he in a he he gets a drunken German to uh, to sell to him, so he becomes the mayor of it. And it's I was and again, it's one of those movies where the premise I I I sort of had two uh, different ideas of how it actually played out. I thought it could either play out like a like a Malick movie, um, and parts of it almost feel like it's uh, Peter Weir's mm-hmm. uh, take on Malick. There's a lot of narration by a child, and yeah, and a lot of focus on nature and man and stuff like that.
2: Picnic at Hanging Rock had a couple of
3: moments that reminded me of Malick too. Yeah, um, and then there's and then I, or I thought it could maybe be like just like Robinson Crusoe, where it became an adventure. But what's really interesting about it to me is it's not about either of those things. It's about this, uh, the character Harrison Ford plays, and I think it's one of Harrison Ford's best, best roles. He is so great in it. He's and such a magnificent asshole.
2: Ebert's main <laughs> criticism of this movie was because he is such a fucking asshole that you don't have anything to like about him. And no, how can, how can you ha- you know go through a movie sympathizing with this guy or you know well that's identifying with his plot? Well,
3: well, what it's it's about is he's an egomaniac and basically. <laughs> right. America isn't good enough for him anymore. And he wants people to worship him. And it's, but what's, what it, makes that, what makes it, that story really interesting is how it's told, it's told uh, through the eyes of like a, uh, like a preteen, you know, uh, burgeoning adolescent boy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's not about um, Harrison Ford. Like Harrison Ford is, the main character but it's told through the eyes of his son yeah and it's more about the, that moment his,
2: idealizing your father yeah
3: that moment where you sort of realize that your dad isn't God. fallible yeah he's fallible. yeah he's fallible and he makes mistakes and it because at first Harrison Ford's inventing crazy I mean he's a brilliant man he's inventing crazy things he really changes the village around and everyone mm-hmm. in the village loves him and which is of course what he wants but then you know once he finds once he gets in over his head he refuses to admit it um and he gets keeps rationalizing more and more um to the point where his family starts turning against him and it's it was so much more interesting than i thought it would be i also didn't realize i missed in the opening credits it's written by paul schrader which he's really
2: good at making these kinds of stories about these really totally
3: self-involved characters yeah going in going over the edge exactly yeah um Highly recommend Mosquito Coast. Now, the next is Dead Poet Society, which, uh, as Brendan mentioned, is sort of mocked. Um, but I was talking to Brendan earlier, mm-hmm. and he has sort of a more interesting sort of uh, view of it.
2: Yeah, I was kind of indifferent to this, but I haven't seen it in a very long time. So what are your thoughts?
0: Well, I mean, I think uh, it's a really uh, – I almost want to say it's a very sad movie in that it's a movie where – um, the status quo is challenged, but at the end of the movie, the status quo isn't changed. And you get the impression that, you know, yeah, Ethan Hawke may come off, go off and become a writer or do all, you know, be touched by his experience with this guy. But that for the most part, these kids are just going to do what's expected of them and they're going to go. And these are the guys that are going to go and say run Enron or, you know, be on, you know, work for the federal government and kind of get us into some of the the problems that we're in today and it's really like, you know, the Robin Williams character is still fired at the end of it. You know, the mm-hmm. the Robert Sean Leonard character is still dead at the end of it. It's like a very kind of sad movie um and while it is pretty much the movie that has inspired me to become a teacher in a lot of ways and oh, kind great. of it's also one that I can see uh you know, I think is is a much sadder um, movie that I think people give it credit for, which I, I kind of appreciate because, you know, um, Robin Williams goes, he touches these kids. He, he hopefully makes an impression on their lives. You know, he exposes them to art and kind of, you know, carpe diem sees the day, but ultimately, you know, you walk out of that classroom and the kids are the ones that are going to go on and, mm-hmm. you know, make the decisions based on what you've given to them. And so I think that while they salute him, um, i don't really know, uh, given how we've seen them react to pressure before, when there's you know challenges over uh what happened to the happens to the Robert Shaw and Leonard character and whatnot that a lot of the kids buckle and they do sell the teacher out, and the teacher does get fired as a result of their actions, and so I think it's very much a you know yes, we salute you, but still you know you kind of know what 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 people we are so interesting
2: yeah well that 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 whole perspective is. Maybe maybe want to rewatch it. So cool. the, the next
3: movie, on the other hand, you do not want to rewatch.
2: Jeff. No, and I don't think I'll ever watch Green Card again. I don't even remember much about it, and it's a, it's I'm not a, a big uh, fan of Gerard Depardieu.
3: Yeah, and uh, Andy McDowell. Not, I not, I a, I not an attraction of mine. I don't, either. I don't hate Andy McDowell. I don't hate her. I don't hate her either. I actually kind of like her in Hudson Hawk, and I think she's well utilized and sexualized in videotape. But yeah,
2: she's all right. And she's just kind of fair <laughs> in Groundhog Day. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: She, that's how I feel about her in most movies. Everybody was
2: like, Peter, where's a sellout? After this one, especially. I don't know. Because he tried to make a light, hokey, romantic, comedy, meet cute type thing. I don't remember yeah, much about I it. I haven't
0: seen this one, but uh, Tommy Five-Tone Guy Davis from, from the Chudboards speaks a lot, uh, very highly of it. Interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> he, he himself is an Australian, so I'm interested in... in catching up on it. And I mean, it. I, I,
2: I do like so. romantic comedies. I just, I, I, it's been years, but then again, I, I, no interest in, there's no reason to really go back. Um, now,
3: before, before we uh, recorded this episode, the only Peter Weir movie I had actually seen is The Truman Show. Another
2: great uh, yes. film. Love the Philip Glass music in this movie, by the yeah,
0: way. Yeah, one of my favorite movie scores yeah. ever. Then again,
3: I, I, I don't have a lot to say about it, because this is one of those movies that I saw, uh, we were talking before the show about how like I feel like every three years I have to resee all my movies because I just I look back and I'm like oh I didn't know anything back then mm-hmm. and this is one of those movies I haven't seen for like six years so
2: yeah I feel like I've watched it every few years since it's come out and I enjoy it more and more every time and I, I feel like I I don't know Andrew Nichol his his first two scripts were fucking great uh, Gattaca and Truman Show. And, you know, Peter Weir's, you know, interpretation of, of some like Andrew Nichols sort of um, social commentary and ideas about where we're going as a society is really interesting. And I, I, they sort of failed after I, I might have been after Truman Show, but I think he did Simone and Lord of War, yeah. where he got way too preachy and sort of
3: ridiculously lost in his ideas. But Truman Lord Show of is War is great.
0: kind of fun, though. So pretty much the only thing I
3: remember going back to the one thing I remember one thing I remember about Lord of War is the amazing opening credits.
0: Yeah. Those are good credits. Yeah. yeah. I mean Nick Cage there, there's a lot of irritating stuff in that movie but I just I think it's one of those Nick Cage's performance where he's having fun and not phoning it in which as a fan mm-hmm. of Nick Cage you kind of have to I kind of have to appreciate. Yeah. As, I, I
3: actually
2: as, own that one. Hmm. And <laughs> as good as uh, Jim Carrey is this is one of his first dramatic roles. Um, I really like the supporting cast a lot in this movie. You got yeah, Paul, Paul Giamatti, Laura Linney, uh, Noah Emmerich as his Who best is friend. Who Paul
0: Giamatti in this?
2: He's in. He's one of the guys
0: in the control room. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow! Helping out
2: Ed Harris. Right. right. And Ed Harris is fucking great in this movie. Um,
0: Nominated for an Oscar. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I love. I love the Truman Show. I don't know. If, you know. I, I. I think every couple of years when I watch it, I, I. I enjoy it all the more, and it's probably in my top three or four of weir's films
0: yeah i haven't seen this one in a while but i do remember seeing it in the theater and and liking it way back when it came out and liking it quite a bit um and i think what what's curious to me especially in in kind of fearless and fearless's take on on spirituality and and god is going back and kind of looking at truman's show with that in mind because i know there's a lot been written kind of about uh christoph as a a god character and truman is kind of the man uh you know and I also remember reading a a uh, a draft of the script or the shooting script that New Market Press did and apparently there was a lot more of the the outside world was in that draft that they shot like there was a lot of additional stuff with hmm. the with the outside world and uh, apparently they shot they wrote like six or seven different endings of the movie before com- finally coming up with the one they came up with
2: I heard uh, some friends of mine weren't happy with that ending if I so, recall they were like well what happens after he leaves like, why should you need to know? It's time to change exactly. the channel. <laughs> I mean,
0: the he is not that he left, or is not that what happens after he leaves, but the fact that he left at all. And I also right. think kind of Nickel really sums it up when it's like, "Oh, uh, let's see what else is on, because here's this entire yes. man's life that we've been watching, and now it's like, eh, change the channel.
3: Yeah.
2: His next film is fucking great, too.
3: Master and Commander, which is not, It's the movie that I just wish... Was way more because it's it yeah. is it has the soul of of a big summer blockbuster. Where it's just mm-hmm. a really good adventure movie with mm-hmm. really fun characters, and it's not it's not too heavy, but it's it's also not dumb at all. And yeah, yeah. and the action is spectacular. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, I'm part of the reason why these movies don't get made because when it came out, I was I thought, oh, who wants to see a movie about the Navy people say right. that and shit? <laughs> um, but it's really great, and again, um, weir does that thing. Uh, he did this in *Mosquito Coast* too. I forgot to mention, like, uh, where you don't—he doesn't take or push anyone's side. Like Russell Crowe and uh, who's who plays the Paul doctor? Bettany. What Paul, Paul Bettany. Bettany? There we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paul Bettany. They—they have two very opposing views on sort of life and more clash and, and, and duty, and yeah, and you—and you don't get the sense that. We is trying to push for either of them as right yes um he's not interested in that he's not um uh i mean that's one thing I really appreciate about his movies is that he'll take these ideas, but he's not um presumptuous or pretentious mm-hmm. enough to assume that he has the answers um, mm-hmm. he's more interested in the questions and uh but again, just really great adventure movie um just uh just outstanding uh I heard he's trying to get more. Couple, like the sequels Russell made.
0: Russell Crowe is there was like there were like fifteen books in this series written, and this is I think the combination of uh, the first, the third, and the the sixth. Mm-hmm. And interesting trivia fact about this movie: before I completely nerd out about it, is that in the <laughs> book they're originally chasing an American uh, Ironsides warship, <laughs> really? and they change wow. it to the French in this movie. <laughs> I guess because of whatever you know sentiment was going on when they were making this movie, um, but. This is probably, I would say, this is probably tied with *Fearless* for my second favorite. *Weir*. It's one of the ones that I can watch, you know, at any time. Yeah. I like that it takes its time. I like that you see, you know, kind of the events of what's going on in this warship, and kind of you get the impressions of of these guys. Uh, you get time spent with these characters so that when the final battle occurs and you know these guys are lost you feel it Um, right i think it was also on on show that somebody described this as the best star trek movie you know in over a decade and as much as i like (laughs) a star trek movie i think it's i think that really is true because uh here's the here are these guys they've been thrown together they've been given assignment and you know they have wildly different views but at the end of the day you know they're still friends and, th- and the ending just kind of brings a smile to my face where mm-hmm. the steve uh paul bettany is is annoyed that he won't be able to go back and find this bird because you get the impression he could kind of bin charles darwin if he wasn't on this military vessel and russell crowe's just kind of like busting him and is like well if the bird's flightless it's not going anywhere and yeah. kind of <laughs> go off to have more adventures
3: right. that's actually a really interesting uh, uh the The Star Trek observation, because one of the things I really liked about this movie is the boat is the world, and it's yep. uh, it's sort of yep. the same feeling it's I had ship. Um, uh, during. No, no, not even during. Dust boot doesn't even really do this because Dust boot starts off on land, right. but like when they go off, when they finally go off onto the island, it's like. It's weird, and it is like when Star Trek would go on a planet where you know that they're not going to spend too much time on this planet. Right. This is a like a little temporary getaway. The boat is almost like a character. But there, yeah, there's so much joy here and and pain and, and it, but it mm-hmm. but it again, it's not too heavy. It's not a big idea movie. I bet they were hoping because of you know the period and the and the elaborate you know production design everything. They're hoping it'd be an Oscar movie, but it's not an Oscar Beatty. Kind of movie, which I is. I think
0: it got nominated for a couple of Oscars. Yeah, uh, yeah but I
3: think it was nominated so. for Best Picture. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. See, i but that's—I was afraid it would be like an Oscar bait movie about. But it won for and...
2: cinematography, justifiably nice. so. And again, yeah. he he uses music amazingly in this movie. A lot of great classical pieces, a lot of adagios, and which also in Gall- Gallipoli, the adagio used in that movie towards the end is. What, almost as powerful as What's tattooed, tattooed on
3: the on the man's knuckles? Hold faster. Uh, I think so. That that that's one of the great movie tattoos, <laughs> I'd have to say. <laughs> um his uh, the la- the last
2: movie I I've, I've watched of his is his most recent. It took him 7 years to make a movie again. The Way Back, which has very little music surprisingly. Um it's 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 interesting that the, there's been kind of a backlash about the historical accuracy of this movie, and it says it's inspired by true events, and then Weir himself has gone on record saying that it's not true. Right. Um, but it's about a group of prisoners who escaped from a, a gulag camp during World War II, and it is a lot of walking. Yeah. A lot. And I was... I, I, I was invested... But not to the point where when something happened to a character, I was devastated because I was sort of expecting that. And you kind of expect that in these long-journey movies that some people are going to make it, some aren't. Um, I thought the accents, like Colin Farrell's accent, was pretty horrible. Um, but Ed Harris... What accent is he doing? I think Russian. Uh. Uh, Ed Harris and Sir, Sir Ronan from Hannah. Is that her name? Yep. Uh, excellent, as, as always. And... Um, I liked I liked the movie. I wouldn't say it's one of his best films. I'm not sure what it needed because I think it just needed stronger characterization. Despite the fact that it's really not about that, it's about the journey and all the places they go. And this is a movie that, I don't know if it was nominated for cinematography, but again, it should have. And you know, his continuing themes of like characters winding up in unusual territory. This movie covers. A wide gamut of different climates and settings, you know like a forest, then uh, you know a frozen tundra and then the desert and how can they survive all this it's it's a good movie it's definitely worth seeing it's kind of a step down for me from Master and Commander though, so
3: that would do it for Mr. Weir and I can't wait to see what he does next yeah um I guess we we'll wrap it up um what are we'll go through and say your three favorite uh Weir movies uh Jim?
2: Um, I'm probably going to go Fearless, Mosquito Coast, and Truman Show.
3: All right. Uh, Brendan?
0: I'm going to go with uh, Witness and then a two-way tie for second between Fearless and Master and Commander, and I'm also going to throw an honorable mention towards The Truman Show.
3: All right. And I think I would uh, probably say number one's Mosquito Coast, number two is Last Wave, and number three is uh, Fearless. Very good yeah excellent filmmaker and another again what nice
2: discovery to revisit yeah one of the uh
3: one of the best things about doing this podcast is discovering all these filmmakers i didn't know i loved uh yeah
2: he's he's it's it's great i mean our next filmmaker we're talking about is uh david cronenberg and he's sort of always been like i'd say my top 10 but peter weir is is he just cracked the top 10 for me
3: after seeing some of his earlier films yeah i my top 10 is getting pretty crowded. Yeah. <laughs> There's at least mm-hmm. 15.
2: Yeah. It's been it's been great to have you on, sir. Oh, absolutely. Um, thank you so you much. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed on. it. Yeah, we'll have to have you back for sure. Mm-hmm. Anytime. Excellent. Um, please visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com.
3: Uh, visit our Twitter at at DCpodcast. Right. Um, my, t- my Twitter is at PatrickRappole. And I'm at Jimmy Jim James L. I always forget about the L. <laughs> gotta change the name. I should, shouldn't I? You, I mean, most times Twitter names don't mean anything, but when you're in a position where you have to say it out loud, yeah. that's gonna. Um, I'll and I'll, again, I'll shorten it. <laughs> uh, you know, if you enjoy the podcast, tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes. All yeah. that, all that helps. Um, we're very happy with the response. Yeah, so visit far, our so.
2: site to see our schedule, which is something we're. Going to keep up on our website now mm-hmm. so you can check out what filmmakers will be talking about next and you can shoot us an email ahead of time discussing what you think of the directors. So visit directorsclubpodcast.com. I can't believe I mentioned that. <laughs> All right, thanks everybody. Uh, we'll be seeing you later. I can eat bullets, walk on water, and shit ice cream.
1: I'm going to kick your ass.
3: I thought Mosquito Coast was going to be like Space Ghost Coast to Coast.
2: Or Mansquito. <laughs> mosquitoes, Coast to Coast. <laughs> <laughs>